This is the Pose on the Matrix. It is the 23rd of October, 2019, the year of our Lord, I might add. I know that ticks people off, so that's why I'm saying it. Um, <laughs> we have with us Ralph Epperson. Um, hi, Ralph. How you doing, buddy? I'm good, fine, David. Thank you very much once again for an opportunity to share some ideas. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Tonight, folks, we're going to kind of break from the... Um, what we've been doing uh, for the last few weeks, uh, you know, we've been uh, doing a little prelude and then playing some of Ralph's, um, his slideshows uh, to kind of round things off. And tonight we're just going to be uh, doing uh, however long it takes, um, bouncing ideas back and forth. And I'm calling this show The Wit and Wisdom of Ralph Epperson. <clears throat> hey, Ralph, you got that book handy? <laughs> I want your issues to see. I'm going to you can read it so that they the wit, the wit and witness, uh, wisdom of Ralph Epperson, and who's it by? By James Kennedy. When I first saw that, I thought it was Reverend James Kennedy. <laughs> no, no, unfortunately, you can see it's a good-sized book. And by the way, yeah, it is. Just, just showed up about an hour before you and I started talking today. So this is the first copy of this book. You can see that Jim did a great job. He did, we interviewed for hours. And so uh-huh. now flip the page to show you that Ralph does have wit and wisdom. Just watch as the words fly by. Look at that. See, I, can't yeah, see. I can't. You can't see it, Ralph. You got to hold it more in the center. Oh, uh, more in the center. See oh, there you go. Oh see, my goodness. See how? Wait, 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 I want, to call, I want to call that publisher, boy. We're going to have a long chat tomorrow. Yeah, it looks like his uh, his typesetter doesn't have a set type. Yeah, crummy people. No, what we're going to do is, as I'm just going, I've got a list here of 28 things. We probably won't get them all, but maybe we will. I don't know. We'll see. But I want to talk about some things that have occurred to me in the past, because I've been doing this for 50-some years. I'll be telling stories. Uh, and also some of which, some of these stories have never been revealed ever because I've kept them secret from my own because I was afraid or maybe I didn't think it was appropriate to talk about, but I'm going to do that. Okay. So I wanted to, uh, if I may, I start with this. I've got, I've got the list. The number one item on the list is theology. I want to briefly explain to you, if I may, uh, my theology very, very briefly. Okay. Because I, I'm not I'm not a great Bible student, but I have figured out why 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 is there an earth? What's mm-hmm. it for? Why why are we here? Why is there people? Why are we? Well, why is there time? Why there's a reason for it? And this is my explanation that I can prove that the universe was created, which means there was a creator. Now, right. why did he do it? He's, he's God. He made the universe. 
So he must have had a reason for it, and I believe it was this. This is my theory, not biblical, just apparently God said, I, you know, it's kind of, it's great being God, I'm in charge, I can do whatever I jolly well want. I've got that power. So I said, I'm, I think what I'll do is I'll create a, a group of angels, and they'll, they'll, they'll be my, they'll be in, in heaven with me, and we'll get together and talk and chat, and, and they'll worship me, and I'll worship them. So he created the angels, and during that time, someplace along the line, one of them decided to break uh, and decide to replace God in the universe, and they would, the, he and the uh, would take over the, have the have throne of God in there, wherever it is, and he did that, and there was a war in heaven. And, and uh, Michael and his angels were two-thirds, I guess, and the devil grabbed one-third of the angels, and they all, he, God banished them to the earth. So then God said, I'm going to create Adam and Eve. Now notice that the angels were, were created to worship him. Mm-hmm. So he said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a group of pe- uh, create a, a people and give them free choice. And then I'm going to ask him to one question. And the question is what Jesus asked Peter, we're almost finished, in the, in the Bible. Whom right. do we walk up to him, I presume, and say with his finger maybe in his nose? Whom do you say that I am? That's the question that all of us, every man, woman, and child, are being asked. That's the purpose of life. He's determining if you worship him, you understand who he is and who he did, why he allowed Jesus to do this, come to us, sacrifice for us. Once you do that, you're going to be given eternal life. That's the whole process. If you don't make that decision, I don't want to go there. I'm telling you, the purpose of life is for everyone sitting here listening right now to answer but one question with their free choice. Whom do you say that Jesus Christ is? That's simple. I made that decision in 1973. And God changed my life and led me into this work of research until I've done everything I can to get people educated by writing books and DVDs, but for whatever it's worth, uh, that's it. My theology is very simple. Life has one, one purpose. Each of us was given free choice, and we're going to choose, decide to choose Jesus. If you do, eternal life. And if you don't, I don't want to talk about that. That's up to the Bible and God. I don't know. But that's what, what this is all about. Mm-hmm. Okay, I want I want to talk about Whitaker Chambers. John, who on earth is Whitaker Chambers? This goes back to the uh, late 40s, I think. I read his book called Witness. Whitaker Chambers was a brilliant man. He was a senior editor for like uh, Time Magazine or something, and he was a, was a physical member, card-carrying member of the Communist Party. And he, he was his job was, uh, uh, I think it was based out of Washington, D.C., and his job was to transmit correspondence up to New York uh, as the courier for the uh, party. He was on the board especially, and so he knew what, you know, he was loyal. So one day he was watching his little daughter eat her breakfast in a high chair. And he looked at her ear and said, that ear was created by something, somebody, a God. Only a God could make a perfect ear such as that on my little daughter. And he said, at that moment, I said, if the communists are wrong about the human ear, 
they've got to be wrong about everything else, and he broke from communism. Wow. His daughter's ear. Everyone who's listening has got a daughter, well, who's got a child has a daughter's ear. And I'm telling you, that ear was divinely created. No series of, of uh, uh, chance happenings or whatever could create that ear that, that beautifully. A little ear, it suddenly dawned on him. His whole life of 30-some years as a congressman vanished in a split second. And he wow. talked to life out and they both got out. That's Whitaker Chambers, great, great. That's story. amazing. I love that story. Here's the, here's the first one of, this, one of these. I've never revealed this before. But I'm not going to be too specific with who I work for or when or even this man's name. I won't give it to you. But I'll tell you what happened. Uh, I was working for a company, and uh, during their election hour, I had an office, a, a private office, and a, a desk and a typewriter. There was no computers then. This was back in 1980. And uh, I was typing a, a, an article that later appeared in the evening newspaper. We had two newspapers at the time. And they allowed me to write it. They put it in the editorial page. And I knew they were going to do that with a picture. And I was stunned by that. It was going to be on a Sunday newspaper on the front page of the editorial section of the newspaper. Wow. I was stunned. And so it was all about how we were giving American aid to Soviet Union, the Soviet Union. And I was typing it up, and this man walked in. No, this was, I'm sorry. Yeah, that was the first time, that's right. So he came in, and he said, I'm so-and-so from the, the insurance company. He was our uh, loss control representative. He was a safety engineer for the insurance company about our workman's comp. And so he was, uh, I'm sorry, I got that story wrong. Forget the thing that I was typing. That was just in my office. And he walked in with his business card and said, I'm so-and-so. And I recognized to be a safety engineer for the insurance company, so I knew what he did. I said, what are you here for? And he said, I'm here to, uh, your, your shop, uh, auto shop mechanic is going deaf, uh, the teacher, and we've got to find out why and what we can do to make it so it's not going to go deaf. So he said, he brought an audio meter, whatever it's called, and showed it to me. And I said, well, can I go along? He said, yes, certainly. So we drove in the car. And as we're driving, I asked him, I said, uh, uh, you, 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 uh, 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 maybe he mentioned, forgive me, I didn't, but he was a very tall, handsome, erect man, spit and polish, and he looked like an officer, and I said, were you in the military? He said, yes. I said, would you mind sharing with me what rank you were? He said, I retired. And I said, yes. He was a colonel, which meant a full colonel. And I said, really, thank you very much. So I stored that back in my uh, uh, frontal lobe, and so the next time he came in, I said, I'm going to risk my job. I'm going to talk to this guy about being an officer because I got a story. And I, that's when I, the second time he came in, I was typing it. And he said he'd be there at 1.30, and he got there at 1 o'clock. So I, so I was typing it on my lunch hour, but I have to admit, on their typewriter with their sheet of paper and their ribbon, etc. So I was cheating. But anyway, I'm doing it on my time. So I was halfway finished. I pulled it out, and I gave it to him. And I said, uh, he started reading, and he said, well, why are you concerned about this? And the story was about how we were giving, selling Russia technology. Uh, this was back in the 80s. And I documented it with my article. So why are you concerned about it? I said, this is madness. He said, is it? I said, what, wait, what do you mean, is it? He said, I, I know we're doing this, and I said, I'll tell you why. He said, for instance, we sell General Motors their tank transmission. And he said, uh, I said, well, why do you do that? He said, well, because we, 
this way we would know how uh, effective their tanks are because how they how where they can how much service they can take in the dust, et cetera, so we know about their equipment. I said, Colonel, I said, listen to me. If we didn't sell them tank transmissions, the Russians would power their their uh, their their uh, engines by this rubber bands, tie them in a string and tie them up and wind it up and set. He said, Yeah, a lot of people say that. So we started talking, and we didn't get much that day, but they came down and we had lunch, and we explored this thing, and he shared with me that he was in support of what I was in opposition to. Wow. One of them, retired, one of them. And boy, when I started listening to him, and I realized he could make a phone call to the Pentagon, because he's a retired Pentagon officer, he's a staff officer. Probably never once commanded a troop over anybody. But anyway, he, was just, he told me he was. So I said, God, so I was very, very cautious. But anyway, uh, on the way back, uh, we went to lunch, and on the way back, here's the, the key to this whole story. Listen to this. We were walking back from, uh, we went from my office across, and we walked to this next street up. We were on the north side, south side. We walked to the north side, and we were there in a street, busy street, one of our major thoroughfares. <laughs> so we stopped to the light, walked across where it said, don't walk, and then we walk, and we walked, and then crossed the other street and went to the, the restaurant, which was just a block away. We're now coming back, and we stopped for the stoplight a block away. And we're standing side by side like this. So he was taller than me, and he's, we're facing like this, the street. And he says, he turned to me and said, uh, for instance, how much do you know about the Rothschilds? And I said, well, I know enough to know they're involved. He said, you're right. And I said to myself, I said, be careful. I said, well, listen, how come I know about the Rothschilds? Now listen to what he said. Because we, notice he said we. Because we let you, meaning you conservatives and conspiracy theorists, and by that time I knew 20% of what I know today. He said, because we want, we let you know what we want you to know. So we're supposed to know about the Rothschilds and the Morgans and the Rockefellers, but not mm -hmm. the others. Now here's the key. Listen to this. This, act, this is happening, and right now in my memory, I'm standing on the corner again. I'm reliving it to make sure I report it accurately. We're standing like this, okay, facing this. And we're, he's turned towards me, and I'm turned towards him. So uh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm looking like this, and he's looking like that. So I say, uh, well, tell, why do I know about the Selegmans and the Oppenheims? Now, trust me, he turned from a bidding of looking at me, 180 or whatever it is, degrees, and looked off in the same direction I'm looking which means I'm ignoring you. And he stopped. He literally stopped. The light changed twice. I kept saying, Rick, it's time to cross the street. He's not, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't move. He was physically standing there. He wouldn't move. Huh. And I said, Rick, please, it's time to go. So finally, during one of the times when the light said, it was probably three minutes, four minutes. When it was time for me, I walked down into the curb because there was no traffic. And I looked up at his face. And he had that blank stare like he was hypnotized. Just like that. Huh. I said, Rick, what's the matter? I don't know he's having a heart attack. I, I couldn't get him. He's a healthy, tall, good-looking. So finally, I got back up on the curb because I was going to get by a car. And I gently grabbed him by the elbow, you know, the elbow here, the 
between the elbow and the shoulder. And I said, Rick, I shook him and said, Rick, are you all right? What's the matter? And he finally turned. And I'm 6'1", and he was 6'3", at least. He went like this into my nose and said, not angrily, like this, word for word. How do you know about them? And I backed up and said, oh my God, I'm in trouble. I said, I know about them. They're buried. They're bankers and they're buried. And he said, you're not supposed to know about them. Huh. Said, this guy could make a phone call and I'm, I'm chopped suey. Right. So I decided I'd better be careful. So we, we finished the day. So now... He said, as we're walking back, he said, by the way, and I want to be honest with you, I'm not trying to say to both, I want to be honest with you. He said, uh, what's your IQ? And I said, uh, well, when I, I got out of college, I tested on it on an IQ test at 129, which is true. He said, oh, you're not smart enough to figure this out. And I said, well, if I may, I took an IQ about two years ago. Now, I was in, in 1980, I think it was 50, 43 or something, so I was still in the middle of you know, my prime. So I took an IQ test at 165. He said, boy, you are smart enough to figure this out. And I said, I'm in trouble. He said, how would you like to go to, uh, to uh, the name of the city where the Pentagon is? I can never remember. Something Virginia. Landing, Virginia. Said, yeah. As soon as I heard Langley, I knew CIA. So he was somehow maybe even connected to the CIA. And I said, Rick, I shall be honest with, with you, my friend, I don't want to go. I will never go with you to, to uh, Langley. He said, oh, yes, you will. I said, no, I'm telling you, you're going to have to drug me or kidnap me or force me. And, you know, I have no choice, but I'm not going to go with you. He said, listen to this. This was 1980. He said, we will send someone who sounds like you, and you will go with him to Langley. Whoa. At that precise moment, Ralph Everson said, Ronald Reagan. Huh. Instantaneous. Because I was a, Reagan was a, in my mind, in 1980, after what I learned about him in California and also what he did was as a governor, I knew he was a traitor. In my mind, he was a traitor. And I said, my God, if, uh, if, uh, <laughs> I be, I, I'm not going to go, but I, I better be careful. So now, we walked back and, and uh, we left. Uh, now, he came back to the office, and then and last last time I saw him, because my job within a matter of months got redlined. I was right there, but not in the budget the next year. So I got redlined. So I said, okay, I don't care. I'm, gonna go. I mean, I'm leaving anyway. So I said, what does you people want? Now, listen to this. What he told me in 1980. He said, Ralph, if you could come back to the earth in 300 years, you would find the world occupied by yellow people, China. Whoa. Uh-huh. Holy smoly. That was 1980. And now China is a major player. In 1980, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. So what did he mean by that? That's when I, when I wrote the New World Order, I documented the fact they're talking about reducing population to 500 million, which right. is 92% of us have got to go. Then I learned about recently the Georgia Guidestones talk about 92% reduction in population. People right. are actually saying this and putting it in stone. Mm-hmm. Is that what this is all about? Red China? 
Now, notice what Trump is doing. The last, uh, I the last part of the story. This is all new. New. I wouldn't have said this, but since it happened just a couple of days ago, he said China is no longer growing; it's losing, and we're growing, gaining. So maybe it's not going to be China. But think about the thought that he just said. My God, do we all be okay? I don't. One last part that just occurred to me. He said, "We'll send someone who sounds like you." Within a matter of months, I got invited to a conference in Washington, D.C., put on by Reverend Sun Yat Moon, or whatever. Remember the Moonies? Yeah, sure. South Koreans. Yeah, he was, right. He was running an anti-communist conference, and uh, they had called me and invited me to go. Free. They'll pay for my airplane flight and my room and board and everything else, and uh, back and forth. And I said, my God, Rick is inviting me to go to, because uh, they sound like me. Uh, Sun Yat knew that I was a, also anti-communist, and Reverend Moon, whatever his name was, was also. So I said uh, to them, no, I'm sorry, I'm not going to go. And that was it. I've never heard from him since. He, uh, I got red lines, so I've never, that's the end of the story. Huh. I don't, that, I know that doesn't fit the scriptures, but it does fit what maybe what they're really planning with Red China. We, in my Unseen Handbook, I documented the fact that it was our government that turned China over to Mao Tse-Sung and Chao Enlai. Our government did that, knowingly, willingly, and we blackballed or screwed with Chiang Kai-shek, right. who was ele- actually elected the, uh, China premier, wherever it was. Hey, let me ask you a question, Ralph, while we're on this subject. Um, do you think that maybe – now, I, I, we, we've talked a little bit about this subject, guys, so I really don't know your whole thoughts on it, but do you think maybe he was talking about maybe some kind of um, alien proponent to this, uh, well, some kind of hybrid thing or something? Or? I'll have to admit, of course, I'm, I'm not a believer in even in 1980. I didn't I didn't pay attention. I don't believe in UFOs. I've never seen one or ever, so I don't believe it. That is certainly a possibility that maybe they think that that the uh, the lizards are, are yellow and maybe it's going to be run by the lizards. I don't know. That would fit now maybe because now we're you know uh, David Icke has written books about being uh, that Queen Elizabeth is a lizard and George Bush is a lizard. They can shapeshift. That's the word they use. Yeah. Shapeshift. So I don't huh. know. But anyway, that's a possibility. I hadn't thought about it until just now. But but whatever it was, it wasn't going to be uh, we white guys and we black guys and we uh, uh, Hispanics. Right, right. Interesting. Very interesting. Oh, let me finish. There's one more. Forgive me. It just occurred. Sure. One more segment. I shared that story twice independently of each other. The first time I was being taken during I was touring the country from 85 to 87 with my book, and I'm being driven by a husband and wife. I'm in the back seat, and I'm leaning up on the back seat so we can talk as we're driving along. So I, I, the guy that was driving me to the next city was a, a, a minister, retired minister. So I told him that story. I just told you, and I see, he said, let me tell you this. That man, that colonel, retired colonel, was demon-possessed. Uh-huh. said the reason he looked away from you was to let he, the demon took over his body and they formulated an answer and it took him four minutes to formulate it because that's how long he stood there 
He stood there with the traffic buzzing by and not buzzing by. We could have walked probably three times across the green light. So he said, and I said, well, I never thought about that. But I'm telling you, Ralph, that, that signs that he was a de demon-possessed. Now, I shared this story again later, just a matter of four or five years ago, with another minister who was also retired. And he said this. He said, I, uh, when I was uh, uh, working in Hawaii, I had a lumber bill on some, top of some mountain or something, and I used to drive from the city up to the uh, up to my lumber bill, and I was running, it was probably just enough to make two-by-fours for the local industry or whoever it was. So wherever it was, he had something up there that was doing that he had to have a mountain. So when he would drive by a hippie commune, and he said that, uh, that uh, he said, I'm a retired minister uh, uh, between jobs, apparently. So I said, I'm going to go talk to them. And he went down there and started witnessing to them. But he said he would, he'd actually, uh, de uh, what's the word, exercise. Uh, 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 I exercised demons from these hippies. Uh -huh. I actually saw them. I said, well, I've never heard that before. I said, oh, I'm telling you, I've seen them leave their body. And he said, I agree with the first guy. Actually, I told him the first guy said what he said. He said that guy was demon-possessed. That was the the time that it took him, the demon in him, to, to, to uh, uh, formulate an answer. How's he going to respond to this thing? Right. So, boy, I was thinking, I'm in trouble. But I, I, I once again, after I, he left, uh, uh, after the story, I, I went and pressed the Father, I, I have said some things to this man, and he's in a position to cause me great bodily harm. I'm going I'm to pray that you protect me because you know that I'm, I'm in support of you and I, I defended our position to this this uh, retired uh, Air, Army, uh, I guess he was the Army Colonel. Um, anyway. Oh, one more comment. He, I, I, I called him uh, several months later. I had another, I left the company and so therefore uh, I had his card and I had his uh, company. So I called him and got him on the phone and said, uh, he said, you, he said he was asked to go back, uh, this was in November of 1980, uh, no, before the, before either, I guess before the election. So he said uh, uh, he, was, he was asked to go back into the military, and he was thinking about it, but uh, so I called him and said, did you go back? And he said, no, but I said, I wondered why they would call him back, and once again, I thought of Ronald Reagan, because that, I think that was it Reagan elected in 1980? Is that about right? Uh, yeah, right around that area because it was right after Jimmy Carter, and Jimmy Carter was in the late 70s. Okay, so maybe it was 80. So in other words, he went. He was being called in to go back back after the election of when Reagan was inaugurated, but he decided, as he told me on the phone, his wife had cancer, and he decided not to go back to the military. So right. he, he might have very well been a CIA agent. But yeah. I'm past that. Now, Number two, uh, Jewish conspiracy. There is no such thing, and I'm the one of the few people in this country explaining that and documenting it. It's all bogus, and as I uh, say, whenever I get that issue coming forth, I'll say to the person I'm talking to or even in a group, I'll say, listen, my friend, this conspiracy is not Jewish. I said, first of all, the people that are in the conspiracy that were Jews before had to renounce their belief in, the, in their God. They've got to renounce their Judaism and become Luciferians. So whoever they're in the top layers, you're not you're not believing in the Old Testament God of the Bible. You're worshiping Lucifer. So you, you're not. You might be 
you know, living in the Hollywood being a Jew and supporting making pornographic movies or something. But that's not the same as being involved with a conspiracy. So that's right. just as bogus as a $1 bill. And I'll defend it. In fact, I've got a DVD. If you want to hear that, it's on the Internet. Just type in, in Google image or whatever it is, video, the Jewish conspiracy, and uh, you'll watch the documentation how bogus that whole theory is. So I don't believe it. Mm-hmm. Okay, now here's a, one of the things we talked about. I think maybe in one of the programs, I want to bring it forth because it's an interesting question. Congress passed Obamacare. Right. Which gave the government the right to force a doctor to serve a patient who had Obamacare. Now, wait a minute. The 13th Amendment reads, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist within the United States. Isn't forcing a doctor to serve a patient slavery? It is, definitely. Rand Paul is uh, now a senator, a senator, and he, just a matter of a couple, well, in fact, I think he did it when they were debating the issue. I saw a clip of him, and he was challenging the guy down the road that was a senator who said, we got to pass this, or whatever it was. And he said, listen, you're giving co- government the power to force me to serve a patient. Where do you get the right to do that? Where did Obama get the right to pass a law that forces doctors to serve patients? Exactly. It's slavery. Uh Uh-huh. Which means Obama knows, as I know, that the Constitution is null and void. I don't think Rand Paul knows that yet. Right. But Barack Obama knew that he had the power granted him by Congress, because Congress has the power, and we'll discuss that in another issue, and my list later, maybe, uh, the Congress was given total unlimited power, and they can give that power to the president. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's not a human right. Uh, 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 Bernie Sanders has said that getting medical attention is a human right, which means he has the right to force a doctor to serve him. And if he doesn't, the doctor will go to jail. That's where we come with this issue of, of these all these free programs. It's not a right. You don't have the right to get medical care. You have the right to seek medical care, and the doctor has the right to refuse to serve you. That's right. That's right. You can discriminate. I make this comment often on the Internet. Did you notice that slaves do not discriminate, do they? No, uh uh-uh. All of their decisions are made by the master. That's right. When to get up, when to go to work, when not to work, when uh, when, what uh, what hours you're going to work. You know, we'll feed you, we'll take care of you, we'll give all. If you got medical care, you want to have a child, we'll talk about it, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. All your decisions are made by the master. What's happening in America? We're taking orders. The government's going to solve all of our problems for us. Therefore, we have no have the, the right to decide for ourselves anymore. We've uh-huh. become slaves. That's right. The Thirteenth Amendment prohibits it, but the Thirteenth Amendment is part of the Constitution, which was overturned in 1938. 1938, no Constitution. Right. You That's know, Ralph, what's interesting about that is uh, they're they're, they're going to make it pretty soon to where they can force a pastor to marry a, a homosexual couple. Yeah. And also find the church. Yeah, up here, up here, 
up here in uh, Portland, uh, you know, north of here, uh, they actually put a, a company out of business, and um, they were sued for hundreds of thousands of dollars because they wouldn't bake a wedding cake for a gay, I wouldn't say gay, for a homosexual couple. Um, so what I've done on, on my uh, website, because I, I've married people before, um, and I'm, you know, with the expectation that somebody's going to come up someday and say, okay, you know, well, you know you're going to marry us and we're going to sue you. Um, Thank you. Um, I, I've said, um, that, yes, okay, what we'll do is I will, I will, if you're a Christian couple and, or a man and a woman that, that, are, that want to get married, I will marry you in a biblical fashion. But also keep in, in a biblical fashion, if you're a homosexual couple, I will perform a cursing because homosexuality is a curse. It's an abomination. So, you know, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll officiate over a ceremony, but I'm not going to bless it. I'm going to curse it. <laughs> you know, what do you think about that? I agree. We absolutely agree. I, I remember the signs that they used to put up in stores. We reserve the right to refuse service to anybody. Mm-hmm. Why? They have that right. It's their store. No, we've made our stores public because they serve the public. They don't serve the public. They serve whoever they want. The owner wants to serve. That's so we right. lost that right as well. Mm-hmm. We we talk used to talk about unalienable rights. This is one of them. One of them was the the right to to freely choose who we associate with. That's they right. shut down the Kiwanis Club because they wouldn't accept women. They shut them down. So I I asked the question on my talk show here when that happened, or we had called in or something. I said, wait a minute. Let's say that the men get to, before the first woman shows up. And they've lost the right to, uh, I said, what they're going to do is they're going to dissolve the organization. Then what do they do? Well, the government will step in and say, you come back and meet on Thursdays like you used to and accept women, buddy. Is that what they're going to do? They're going to find these people for not, they're free to associate with people of their own choice. That's what freedom's all about. That's right. Okay, while we're talking about freedom, let's talk about this. This is also very important, and I, I repeat it, even though you and I have talked about it on your talk show. I've done it hundreds of times, not hundreds, I'm sure, but I put it on the Facebook all the time. Freedom and liberty are not synonyms, meaning they're not equal uh, words. They don't equal the same thing. Right. Freedom and liberty are antonyms. They're opposites. Wait a minute. We talk about liberty, the Statue of Liberty, during the days of our founding of a nation. They had the, the, uh, the Liberty Bell. They had the Sons of Liberty. We had the Tree of Liberty. Uh, uh, Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death. We talked about Those men knew what liberty was. They knew the real meaning. They know that liberty is free, unlimited freedom. To act according to your conscience. You are that's, free. that's where we get the term libertarian from, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. I call myself a Christian libertarian. I, I reserve the right to decide on certain things that uh, we. I'm not a libertarian, so I'm a libertarian because I believe in freedom. But uh, but I believe in freedom which requires responsibility. Right. In other words, there's an old adage. Your right to swing your arm ends with my nose. 
Mm -hmm. Now, if you believe in liberty, I can string my arm anywhere I want to, including your nose. So please start to distinguish between liberty and freedom. The new world order that's planned someday in the future is going to grant everybody liberty. We're all going to be free to decide for ourselves what's right or wrong. And you say it's impossible? Then you've not read my book that documents that. The Unseen Hand, yeah. No, that's the New World Order book. Oh, okay. Now listen, I'm going to blow my own whistle because you won't do it, David, so I'll do it myself. (laughs) I left Jefferson in 1985 to 87. I toured the United States in 91 cities in 32 states. I didn't cover them all, but I got a bunch of them all over the country. And I would roughly estimate to a paid audience, they paid to hear me and, and promote my book and give an illustrated lecture for an hour and a half. So I went to, and I used, I was the first one in 1985 to introduce the subject that those of us who believe there's a conspiracy have to study the Masonic Lodge. Nobody, but nobody that I know of in 85 was doing that. So now, I covered that, and I estimate the low estimate of the number of people I talked to is 10,000. Plus, I did, I did uh, interviews, I did press conferences, I did talk shows, I, filled, I spoke to civic groups in the morning for everyone. For the, for the, I would speak that night and go in the morning and talk. So I was probably reaching who knows how many hundreds of thousands of people. And now everybody's writing books about the, uh, about the Masons. And we've got to talk about the Masons. And I'll end with one last sentence. If you don't know about the Masons, you do not know history. That's how powerful they are. They're the major, one of the major forces in the way this country, this world's run, the Masonic Lodge. If you don't know Masonry, you don't know history. And I've got a book uh, called... Uh, Basically, Conspiracy Against Christianity, you've got to read. It's, it's available at Amazon.com. So, I covered uh, Albert Pike. I covered the book Morals and Dogma. I right. quoted Manny uh, uh, P. Hall. Uh, so, I introduced the subject of the Masonic Lodge to at least estimated verbally, uh, I mean, attendance-wise, at least 10,000, maybe even more, but also the number of interviews I did, etc. Now, I marked that off. Little Rafi Epperson, since you won't talk about it, because this, this guy was national, and I know you're not national. Ha, ha, ha. Now, <laughs> way, way, back, way back in the 80s, after I wrote the Epperson, I wrote the Epperson in 85. Someone, someone from the Ray Bream show, maybe you don't, you don't remember him, but he was, he was one of the early, he was the Rush Limbaugh of the day during the conservative uh, branch, probably not the, they say Rush has 500 stations, he might have had 300, but he was the verb, the conservative voice nationwide for years, Ray Breen. And suddenly he decided to retire. And I think I had tried, or some of probably his listeners had called and said, get Epperson on the air. He's written a book and you should come. So, you know, I don't believe in conspiracy because Ray Breen knew he couldn't talk about conspiracy but Ray Breed was going to retire. So I said, come on here, Ralph. I sat in Tucson, and he's in L.A., I think. So I did two hours with him talking about conspiracy on a nationwide 
evening talk show that Ray Breen was the, was the conservative voice. I thought that was very rare, but he let me talk about conspiracy without reputation. Reputation meaning he didn't challenge me. And that stunned me. I thought that was phenomenal. So I did it. Never heard from him because he retired. Never heard from any uh, Rush Limbaugh won't do it. I've called, I've called in a couple of times and he hangs up on me. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. I don't think Rush Limbaugh knows what he's doing anyway. Uh, he, he mentioned, I called in once. And I said, I want to talk to you about the, uh, uh, the uh, Bill Clinton's conspiracy. He said, I don't talk about conspiracy, and he hung up on me. So then the next time, someone else called in and said, I don't talk And Rush Limbaugh said, I don't hang up on anybody. And I said, I called in. I got through, fortunately. And I said, Rush, I hate to say this. But I said, I don't have the date, man, but it was a couple of years ago. I called in and mentioned the word conspiracy, and you hung up on me. And he hung up on me again. <laughs> 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 That's what you expect. But also, I did a, 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 five, a six programs, three with the Unseen Hand, and then a couple of years later with my New World Order book on the Action 60s. Action, Action 60, I think it was called. It was a one hour program of a husband and wife who I think were on the TBN before I even knew there was a TBN, but they, had, they bought the time. And they sold books or uh, wherever they could to raise money to pay for the radio time. So, uh, uh, TV time. So I went to, uh, I think it was in uh, Tampa, Florida. I think that was where it was, yeah. I think it was Tampa. So I flew there and did uh, stay for three days. We did three, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then I flew back that afternoon back to Tucson. And then when I wrote my second book, I was on for three more days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, uh, he, t- he got me hold up the book and said, this is my book and I want you to read it. And sure enough, he sold five to 6,000 copies each time, which was phenomenal. So wow. that, was, that was a nationwide program. Wow. I also tried to get on to Pat Robertson. Oh, in fact, I've got that down. Let me, I'll cover that now. We have a good time to cover it. I'll talk, I'm going to scratch him off. He's later on. I was going to talk about him. But let me tell you this. Little Ralphie Epperson, when I wrote the New World Order book, uh, I knew that I knew that Pat Robertson would never allow me to be a guest on his program to sell my book. Let me show you. Here's my book, and uh, I, I was I decided not to show my book. Uh, this book is that people would not and I'm sure you would as well. But I went on the air. I went. I wrote to him and said, uh, Reverend Pat uh, Robertson, I appreciate what you're doing, and I like what you. I'm a fellow Christian, born again believer, and I said I would be loved be I'm pleased to be a guest on your program with my book called The New World Order. And I actually got a letter back, and I presume it was probably a form letter. But thank you very much for contacting us. But uh, and I'll be back in touch with you, and I'll be anxious to read your book, The New World Order. So that book was published in 1990. Well, guess what? Pat Robertson wrote, Please tell me that's not word for word for what you said. No. Okay. But he's right. It's going to take over our world. Written by who? Pat Roberts. Now, I don't, in fact, I found out years later that Pat didn't write the book, and I presume why he's busy, and I don't understand that. But whoever, he allowed it to be written because it's got his name on it. Right. I can only presume he had some doctoral student write it for him. 
but I showed you the book. It's right there. I'm going to open it up to tell you what he said in the book. This is on page, uh, page 92. I know George Bush. Now, he's talking about the father, not the son. I know the father, George Bush. And I personally believe that President Bush is an honorable man and a man of integrity. Well, that's very nice to say. Thank you very much. But let's, let me read you what he said about him in another part of the book. This was on page 37. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to, I know you can't read. I'm not asking you to read, but I want you to know, please understand, I'm quoting this word for word from this book. And if anyone's got it, write down page 37. Listen to this. Men of goodwill like Woodrow Wilson, Jimmy Carter, and George Bush. So he named George Bush as being a man of goodwill. And then he continued, listen, page 37, are carrying out, let me get my, I want to make sure, here it is. My my eyes water up and I'm sure. Are carrying out the mission of a tightly knit cabal whose goal is nothing less than a new world order for the human race under the domination of Lucifer and his followers. Excuse me. Earlier, later in the book, you said that George Bush was a man of honor and integrity, and here you're saying that he's mouthing the uh, unknowingly, unknowingly, Mouthing the words of a cabal who's, who's under the domination of Lucifer. And then, guess who he endorsed for the presidency, Craig Robertson? George Bush. Excuse me, Pat. Listen to this. The New World Order, page 231, will have as its religion a god of light whom Bible scholars recognize as Lucifer. He knows what George Bush believed in, but he endorsed him anyway. Pat, forgive me. I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm sorry. I don't understand that. Can anybody make sense out of that? Well, it's, uh, he, it seems to me like he was walking, uh, walking the fence and uh, with a foot in this world and a foot in, um, a foot in the uh, world to come. But which side of the world to come, I have to ask. Forgive me. I know that he didn't read the book, but but he made those statements. Then, if he read the book, you know what the guy said. Because if he if Pat did not understand what he wrote, then he, forgive me. He should have edited it out if he didn't like it. But it was there. I got. I, okay. Yes. Uh, since you never uh, talked about this, I'm going to. In fact, I'm going to show you. Uh, Well, uh, Ralphie Epperson has been on History Channel twice. Uh, these are the DVDs. These are my copies, of course. Because uh-huh. I put it on. Uh, there it is. Secrets of this one says Secrets of the Founding Fathers. That's that's the the uh, two hour program that I was on. And on the backside of it, I've got the number of, the number of times they quoted me. And for how long it lasted, you can see that. So I was on there uh, 11 times, and I would guess probably I had maybe 10 minutes of a two-hour program. And here's the other one. 
called Secrets of the Dollar Bill. I'm sorry, I got it. In, there it is. Yeah, History that. Channel, Secrets of the Dollar Bill. And that one was, hour. Uh, what, what was one hour? The full one hour program. And on there, I was on there for uh, 19 times, so I was on there more than even on that one. So they gave me a chance to say what I wanted to say, except let me tell you this. i got to be honest. I'll tell you the truth. That's true. I was on, I'm not joking. I was literally on there twice. So the first time I did it, and it was fine, they, 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 they uh, apparently, at least while I was on, now maybe they've changed since 87, 89, or whatever it was. Uh, but when, when, I, when I, was, I did these two programs, I did it for uh, 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 movie makers. In other words, they make documentaries and sell them to the History Channel. And I guess the <coughs> they give a budget, say, we, we will do this subject for you for two hours if you'll give us this amount of budget. So apparently they pay them to do the, do the documentary. And then right. they call people like me. They didn't pay me, but they did pay for my flight. First one was in Washington D.C. and the second one was in L.A. So I actually got paid, and my motel bills paid, and my room room and rent, you know, board. I put the put my meals on there, and the, I rented a car to get back and forth wherever it was. So they they paid all that. And so now the second time it came up, and they got a, and they called it the secrets of the founding fathers. And I said to him, I said, if you want to talk about the secrets of the founding fathers. You have come to the right place. So what do you mean? I said, I know the, the real secret, the only secrets are worth anything. Whatever you've got to talk about, it's nothing compared to what I know that is really a secret of the fight. Well, what is it? And I told him about Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17, that gave Congress total unlimited power in the Constitution, signed by the members of the founding fathers who... Right. I said, that is the secret, and the American people don't know this. Now, I'll be willing to talk about this and document it, and you can put the word, and when I got there, they put me on a green screen. I sat in a chair, and there's a wall covered with green paint, a certain type of green paint, and so they could later on put words above my head that weren't there. If I turned around, I wouldn't see them, but they would put the words above my head, and also down here, which say, Ralph Epperson, the author, that whatever it is. Uh-huh. So now the guy guaranteed me said, Ralph, we this is where's our program, and they know what you're going to say. They I talked to him. I said, yes, we want him to say that. So I I flew to L.A. and as I'm being driven by the same man, as the producer, I said, please understand, if you're not going to do this, let me go home. I don't want to be. I don't want you to chop it, cut it up. You said you'll give me three to four minutes, and I can cover it in three to four minutes. No, Ralph, well, don't you say it. It's okay, it's two now. The same guy says it twice, confirmed it. So when I got there to the studio, uh, the woman was going to interview me. She had a bunch of questions she was going to ask me. So I asked her, I said, ma'am, will you please understand, if you're going to chop it up, don't, don't let me say it. I'm not going to be chopped up. I want you, I'll give it to you in three minutes. You're going to have to give me three minutes. No kidding, we'll do it, Ralph. So I said, okay. So I sat there and I, I had my copy of the Constitution all beat up like this, and I held it up and we read read the words, and I read it like this, and whatever it is I was talking about in Arca 1, and so what it meant and everything else. And I finished, and then I went on to other subjects. So I waited for the first production of it, and found out it was going to be on the, my local history channel, 
at three or seven o'clock. So I turned it in where I waited on the edge of my chair where I can hardly wait. They're going to give me three minutes. They gave me one sentence. One, I believe it. One sentence. One. And the, the one that they gave me was this. They gave Congress total power. Now that's in the middle of the talking about them doing the bad guys. And then I show up. They gave Congress total power. And then they went on to the subject C. Huh. In other words, what is that lunatic saying? He was not only saying it, but he was saying it with force, meaning this is... That, what is he... In other words, somebody's in charge, and it was the History Channel. Right. It might have been them. They were probably legitimate. They were concerned about it. Uh-huh. Just in mind, when you watch the History Channel, that's what they did to me the second time. First time, they didn't do it, but the first second time, they did. They gave right. me things to talk about. You know, I... Uh, uh, let see. Let me some other things. Well, Ralph, while you're looking for that stuff, you know, that happened to, um, you've met Jim Wilhelmson before. Um, they had him on Coast to Coast to, to give a biblical perspective of the UFO phenomena. And when he started to talk about the Bible, they told him that he was getting too too biblical, and they actually cut him off. <laughs> how, do you, how do you give a biblical perspective of UFOs if you can't use the Bible as a reference? So I, I, I understand where you're coming from. But notice this, uh, uh, I got, I got, I got on the back. I showed you that. Uh, that which in my hammer. I says, "Here's what I." That they gave me. Well, I want to talk about how long it was a minute or so. I talked about Arthur Edward Waite, and then I talked briefly about Article One, Section. But no, I already said that it was uh, one minute of the thing. I talked about the symbols on the Great Seal, the thirty-three feathers on the American Eagle. Why thirty-three? The, the eagle on the back of your dollar bill has. 32 feathers on its left wing, but on its right wing it has 33. I talked about that. I talked about the various numbers of 13 as a biggest secret. I talked about the eye, the all-seeing eye. I talked about the ASNOM on uh, on the uh, uh, pyramid side, meaning the masons. And, so that was good. I talked about the two layers. I talked about the square and the compass twice. And I talked about the Masonic Temple, so I did get some good stuff in. But the point was that that wasn't what I was there for. They could right. get me to say that, so they didn't do me a favor at all. I was very. Uh-huh. They didn't do their listeners a favor either. <laughs> okay, uh, my two of my two of my four books are being sold in Red China, Communist China, and Independent actually wrote for permission to publish the books. And I said, you know, they could do this without my knowledge and permission. And let's say that I found out later they had done that. I'm going to fly to China and hire an attorney and go into a court and charge these communists with plagiarism and not paying me. And they change. You think I'm going to get away with that? No, um, you'd end up in the red Chinese prison somewhere. <laughs> so in other words, they could have done this without my permission, but I presume that when they asked for it, they were going to be legitimate and print it exactly, you know, in China in their own language. Now, that was probably three years ago. And I said to myself, after it dawned on me, what did that book have? It's got a market of eight, six billion people. Right. I don't know. Their, their, the publisher's office was in their capital city. So I said, now, wait a minute. Why are the Congress Party going to let them put that book out? They're going to challenge it. And I said, I don't know. I don't 
I presume they're going to do it and let the people buy and keep it private or secret. I don't know. But I know it's being sold because they, a couple of years later, they asked for some extra permission or some, I checked with my, with my uh, uh, person who knows about computers and said, don't do it. So I just ignored it. So I know they're still interested in the book. But notice the book tells them documents in the book that it was the American government that turned China communist. Uh-huh. I document that in my book. It was our government that told Chiang Kai-shek we're going to arm 39-year divisions. We got the money appropriated and then didn't give it to him. And he was actually free, had to flee and go to Taiwan where some of the soldiers, the rest of them were chopped up and killed. That's what our government did. They're going to read the documentation. And maybe that's the first time they've ever heard that. Secondly, it talks about the free enterprise system. It talks about freedom and liberty and unalienable rights. They can read that, all covered in the beginning, couple, three chapters in my book. Right. That's all they read. Think about that. Chinese people are being exposed to freedom for the first, maybe the first time ever. But wait a minute, Ralph. Wait a minute. Before you go any further, what's been happening in China the last couple of months? I know. that I, I, We talked about that. I said Hong Kong is picketing for freedom. Uh-huh. And a democracy, a republic. I don't know. I cannot say that it's my book that did it, but it's been three years that's approximately that book has been in China. Now, how many people in Hong Kong have read it? And maybe some of the people said, let's do this. Let's take Everson up for it and let's go rally for it and stop this madness. Uh-huh. I don't know. Wow, that's amazing. Just think about it, though, if that's the catalyst. My God, I'll never, well, I'm sure when when God calls me home, I'm sure maybe that'll be revealed to me how much effect it had on the Chinese people and maybe even turn people into Christianity. Right. Oh, here's a story. I think you have talked about this, but I think this is interesting. I want to talk about my third book. My fourth book, <coughs> James, was a United States Senator. That was my third book. And uh, uh, my, my cousin uh, worked for a, a company, uh, it was, they ran a spa, a, a one in Tucson up in the foothills, meaning they got movie stars and politicians who wanted to sober up or lose 25 pounds. And so they, she worked up there, but in a clerical position. And uh, so she got to know, maybe they met, you know, coffee time or somehow met in the elevator or wherever it was. And she talked to a, a guy that said he was a, owned a, a Western bookstore, an old West a bookstore in Tombstone. And so my cousin said, my, my cousin has written a book about Jesse James. Oh, really? She said, you should read it. It's really good. Well, he said, well, give me a copy. So I got a copy. And said, I, I had her, gave it to her. She gave it to him. A couple of days later, the guy called me on the phone and says, I want you to know, I've been studying the Old West for 30 years. I got to run a bookstore in Tombstone. My wife and I. He said, I picked up your book. It is the best Old West book I've ever read. <laughs> and he crazy. said, I'm going to make you famous. I said, what do you mean I'm going to make He said, listen, I've got connections in this industry. He said, this, this book is fantastic. It's a great, it's a brilliant book. So I said, okay, well, let me know. <laughs> let me know. Tell me when I can buy my first yacht. <laughs> so, 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 
Presumably being famous means rich, I don't know. So then uh, I, I never heard from him again. And my cousin told me that uh, uh, he, uh, he, he was working in Tucson and lived in Tucson. So he'd come up here during the week because the, the bookstore wasn't doing that well. I guess to have a husband and wife run it, and he couldn't get a job there. So he got a job at this plush thing, probably would pay good salary. So he worked there for five days a week and then went back on the weekends. Well, while he was gone, the little missy wife said, uh, looked over the fence and found some green pasture. Okay. So divorced him. So after that, uh, six months after that, I went down there with my book and tried to get her to carry the book, but I couldn't even get her to take a copy to read it because I said, this is not just a book on Jesse James, just a book about him living to be 103. Uh, I said, the Jesse James books don't sell. So I, so I came back close being rich and famous, and here I am doing a talk show with David, and, and I could have been rich and famous and on my yacht, but it didn't work out. So in other words, uh, rich, all, all of us authors don't become rich and famous. Amen to that. <laughs> you don't you? Yeah. Well, here's a story, and just because of what I just said. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Facebook sent me a message. Uh, Ralph Epperson, this was about a year ago. Ralph Emerson, you've got 5,000 likes on Facebook. You know what a like is? Uh, they, there's a, a talk in a message, and they like it. They, they click on it, like it, and then it shows up in a list. When it says, i got 20 likes, I can go there and find out who liked the thing. They liked what I said, and they can also share it. We'll cover that in a minute. So the, the, here, was the, um, here was the list, and I've got a bunch of likes. i got 5,000. Well, I must be something because it's apparently worthy of their commenting. Maybe people don't get 5,000 likes on Facebook. I don't know. So within a matter of hours, I got a message that said, I'm a Christian pastor, and I had 3,000 likes, and I thought I was doing well. So I said, well, apparently then I got five, and he thought three was uh, doing well. He said it must, five, it must have meant something to him. So apparently that's pretty high. So anyway, I want you to know I got 5,000 likes. I'm working on 6,000 as we speak. By the way, I'll mention this as well. This morning when I got up, I opened up my computer, and I went to my uh, uh, email. It's on AOL, and I opened it up, and there were at least 15 uh, listings. Like, I'll make up one. Uh, Bill Smith, Mary Johnson, and Tom Jones, and 27 others shared your uh, message, which means they copied it, and I put it on their Facebook timeline or wherever it is. That means I got that person's listing is going to read this comment. And then they can like it and send it out. Who knows how many people it's going to reach. But I never in my entire life have this. The top one was 31 likes, uh, shares. Some wow. of them were in the 20s. Some of them were in the 10s, 5s. A couple were 3s. But the 37, 31, I think it was, I've never seen that. So that's phenomenal. So someone liked it, and 31 people actually shared it across the internet. Who knows how many people are going to read it? That's right. That's, they're going to because they like. They say, "Well, I've never heard of Ralph Epperson," and they'll Google me or you know do a, a Wikipedia Google search or look go to my website and find it, and suddenly I'll get start getting orders from people I have no idea that I reached. And I'll say this: I'm I'm getting still my books. 
The NCNAM was published in 1985. It's still being printed. The New World Order was published in 1990, five years later. It's still being printed and still selling. In fact, their books are being sold in at least, that I can verify, six foreign nations. Oh, man, that's amazing. Communist China. Uh -huh. Now, how many other authors get books published in six foreign nations? But Little Ralph has got two books published. I, I had a, a, a lady uh, contact me from, uh, it's not Romania, but one of those countries that spread off in Yugoslav, Czechoslovakia. Uh, I'll remember the name of it. It'll maybe occur, but let's say it's Romania. And she wrote to me and said, listen, uh, uh, I've, I've got, I read your book. I, I bought a copy of it in uh, in uh, Romania. I said, what book? And it was, she she read the title, of course, in her language, which means it was the New World Order published in in uh, uh, this city. And she did a talk show in Romania, or at least it was an editorial writer, maybe a talk show. She said, I'm going to get you in. She sent me a copy of a newspaper story, article, was four pages long. In their local newspaper, they took a picture of me from the book cover, put it on the top, and then translated the whole article about my book in the Romanian newspaper. <laughs> South Africa was a big, uh, there was a time when they were a big, later on I found out they published the book, but I was selling the book down there in, in uh, uh, case lots uh, to South Africa. Wow. Now, as you know, you and I have talked about Oak Island. And, uh, well, oh, I, yeah. I have a great interest in that story. And um, uh, someone that I won't mention, and I'll probably leak out who it was, but anyway, someone said, oh, it's a bunch of baloney. I don't think so. I think they're on the verge of discovering something's going to be earth-shattering. And, and I've watched now six years of the program, and right now, Tuesday night, was the last, I think, of three two-hour specials, but the week before that, they had six hours of it. And they introduced stuff that they didn't cover in the regular program during... It only runs for this, uh, about maybe six or eight... Uh, it's a two-hour program, I think, every week. So it runs for maybe three or four months, and then they only have three... Or, they only work during the summer because it's cold up there in, in uh, uh, it's a, a Newfoundland, I guess they call it. So in the uh -huh. northern part of Canada, I guess. So it gets snowy, and they've shown us a slide during the, the, the log program. They showed two of the guys tromping through the snow to go find a rock or something with big rock that wouldn't be covered by snow. So we know that sometimes they go up there when they have an occasion, but it's really primarily a summertime. But anyway, on November the 8th, I would urge you, please, look for the Oak Island story on the History Channel. Because the little cover, the little vignette, one-minute commercial, has one of the two guys who are funding the thing saying, it really is true. Now what? But it's really true. Well, that's the bait. I'm telling you, they're on the verge. And it looks like they're going to find the Knights Templar buried somebody. And that means the Masonic Lodge. Right. And that also right. they came sometime before 1749. Mm -hmm. Maybe even as early as in the 1400s. Right. They, they found a cross. It's it's not a Jewish cross, but it's a uh, it's like this. It's about that size. I'm sorry. I'm over here. There you go. Yeah. So, yeah there it is. 
and here's the arms, like this. And one arm is longer than the other. And then at the top, it's got a, a circle, like about the size of a dime, like here. Uh huh. Like that. And then the cross. So they found out, they took it to, a, uh, uh, to someone in America, who, because it was made out of uh, uh, lead, lead, lead cross. So they, they took it to someone in the lab in someplace up there in Canada or wherever it was in Newfoundland, and they, they did a, a, a digging, scratching it, and then tested it to find out. And they found out that it was made of lead, but they, they, have, they know where lead mines are all over the country. And they've got samples so that when someone brings in an artifact and they want to know where it came from, they can, say, scratch it and then test it and say, well, that, that, that lead came from a mine in Arkansas or in Oregon or wherever it is. So they've got that technology, but they said it didn't come from the United States. Huh. Yeah. So they took the, when the guy, when they found it, by, God, by God's grace, the guy that helped him, there was a guy using a, 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 what a <laughs> scanner, uh, you know, beeps and clicks when you go to metal. So, oh, yeah, yeah, um, a metal detector. Yeah, metal detector. Yeah. So a metal detector, and he found it, so he dug it up, and this guy, who laid, he, he picked it up, and the guy who found it said, my, oh, oh, he was stunned. He said, this is old. And he said, how old? It was that it could be 1400s, maybe even earlier. So the second guy said, well, my God, that's, that's something we got to, then they had it tested, and they found out. Then later on, this tall guy, who's the partner of the two of the brothers, are financing the whole thing. He went to, uh, to uh, uh, someplace, uh, Marseille, France, to where the, the Knights Templars were arrested and kept kept in a castle or maybe a prison, and they scratched on the wall a bunch of graffiti, and because they knew they were doomed, and so they left clues about the Knights Templar. And guess what? On the wall, about the same size as this, they saw the scratchings of the identical size and shape with the circle on top and the two one arms will be one and the other in the in the in the uh, wall that someone had scratched out. Oh my goodness. So he says he said, I've seen this side this thing before. Where? I saw it in the Knights Templar prison where the prisoners were held for years. Mm-hmm. So he now we know that thing it, now who knows? It could have been brought there by someone in 1997, and he was walking around, it fell out of his pocket or broke his chain, and he lost it. But in any way, it could very mean sometime after 1200, the night steppers were digging around in the, uh, Oak Island. You so know, it, Ralph, it might be, it might be advantageous to kind of go into their history, because I, I know that a lot of Christians, you know, we're, we're told in Ephesians about the spiritual armor that we're supposed to wear. And I was online the other day, and, and there was actually an advertisement uh, for, for a little figurine, you know, uh, probably about this tall, spiritual armor. But when you looked at it, it had the red cross on the shield, which is a Knights Templar cross. And I said on there, I said, you know, I said, you know, be careful with this. I said, because this is not a Christian symbol. This is a Knights Templar thing, and they weren't good guys. 
You know, so maybe just help people understand who they are. From memory, this is done from memory, so I might I might miss a date or whatever. But let's go through this very simply. Yeah. In 1985, I started the research in the Masonic Lodge, and then I lectured, and 10,000 people paid to hear this. So I started looking into the Masons, and boy, I've read their books. <laughs> I actually met a 32nd degree Mason. Uh, I'm, I'm on, I'm, I live in Tucson, of course, and still, and then was, I was single. I go, hello, yes. Are uh, you Ralph Epperson? Yes, are you? I said, uh, listen, uh, this is so-and-so. I said, okay, well, nice talking. What do you want? What do you have? He said, listen, I just had a phone call from a friend of mine who lives in Denver. He said uh, that he said he heard you uh, talk uh, two, uh, two weeks ago about the Masonic Lodge and saying words that weren't very favorable. And I said, well, I can only tell you this. I was, I haven't, I haven't been in Denver. It wasn't two years, two weeks ago. He said, that's why my friend. I said, well, please understand. I have, I have been to Denver, and I have lectured about the Masons in Denver. And it's, the thing was taped, and probably this tapes were circulating. Your friend, who was a Mason, found it. Said, I better watch this, and he watched it, and he called this guy who lives in Tucson, and he was a lodge. Uh, uh, they called him a. Worshipful master in his lodge here in Tucson. He was the 32nd. So he said, I, I said, well, listen, I said, of course I am. He said, I want you to know that I, I know about the Masons. I've read your rituals. Well, you, you can't do that. So let me tell you that. I said, I know more about it than you do. He said, that's not. I said, okay, me, I'll give you a test. I said, the things that I said that disturbed him was that there were two layers inside the lodge. He said, that's not, he said, now on the phone, that's not true. I said, you just proved, I said, I said, I said, before, forgive me, I, I wasn't doing this from memory, I went out of step. Well, so yeah, take your time. Boy, he brought this point up. What did you say? And I said, the two layers. And he said, uh, let's see, uh, it's not, it's not true, that's right. And he said, well, tell me why. And I said, I can't do it. He said, well, what do you mean? I said, listen. I know there are two layers, and I know that you know there are two layers, but I'm telling you, 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 if I say there's two layers, you're going to deny it. Now, let's say that you don't know there's two layers, you're going to deny it. I've been a Mason for 27 years, and I've been, I don't know anything about it. There's no two layers, because he doesn't know about it. But right. I know that you know there are two layers. And suddenly, this guy got down. <laughs> I'm walking on the ice, ice field again, out on the lake that's frozen over. So I said, he said, listen. Uh, so he came up to the house, and he brought his book with him that he published called uh, uh, A Bridge to a Rainbow or a Rainbow Bridge or something. And that book is so important, it replaced Morals and Dogma. Wow. He was the author of it, living in uh-huh. Tucson. A PhD from the University of Arizona. So he brought his book and gave it to me, and I gave him the unseen hand, but I was writing the New World Order. I was close to it. And I didn't want him to know that, because I would have right. it's open and show them for what they are. So anyway, uh, he, he kept calling me. So he read the unseen hand. He skimmed it and found out I didn't talk. If I did, it was very brief about Albert Pike or something. So he knew that I didn't, in that book, didn't. So he said, come talk to my lodge. I said, boy, I said, I, I want to do this. But I, I said, I'll tell you what, I'm still looking into this, but I'm, I'm getting close. I said, I'll be, uh, be, be I'll keep, call back every once a month, and when I'm ready, I'll be able to come talk to your lodge. 
So I finished the book, and uh, <laughs> I had it published. And so uh, I guess he learned about it, and he stopped calling. Because in the book, I told a story about this that he promised me. So I said in the book, after I talked about him in the first chapter of the book, I talked about the circumstances, and I said, I want you to know, Rex, I'm ready to speak to your lodge. (laughs) (laughs) And he ain't going to let me speak to his lodge. (laughs) They leave in droves, yeah. (laughs) Okay, let's talk about that. For those who don't know what the Masons are, let's do it. I'll do it with three fingers. There are three degrees down at the bottom. One, two, three. Enter the apprentice of fellow craft and master mason. And you go through those three degrees, one after, and there's a time lap between them. So this might be, you start on January, maybe you have to wait six months or a year to become a second degree, then you mason wait uh, for a while become a master mason. You can stop, it's called the Blue Lodge. Blue, color blue. Well, Blue Lodge, because the heavens are blue, the skies are blue, and we're talking about okay. So that's it. You can stop there forever. Or you can go on. There's two more. This is called the Sky Shrite. And there's 29 more degrees. You can get to 32. 3 plus 29, of course, is 32. And on the other side, it's called the York Rite. They call that the Christian Rite. And I can't find out anything about them. I don't know where they are. I, I don't know. They apparently meet. But anyway, there's uh, 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 not, uh, 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 10 more so 10 plus 3 is 13, and then, so you can become a, a, a either a 32nd degree uh, a Scottish Rite, or you can become a 13th degree, they don't call it that, but a 13th degree York Rite. And then above that is the uh, 33rd, that's honorary. You're invited into the 33rd. You cannot become, you cannot claim them. No, please, I want a 33rd. No. Uh, and we say we 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 only name so many, and I think it's like one for every hundred uh, masons inside the lodge, wherever it is. So there's that's very limited, but that's where the power is. The thirty third runs the entire Masonic lodge worldwide. Now the reason I know that is because there's a statue of Albert Pike, the writer, the author of the uh, uh, the uh, book Morals and Dogma, which used to be given until the seventies when they stopped giving it away. And now they're giving away Rex, Rex, this guy's name is Rex, uh, uh, I can't remember his last name, Rex somebody, and he published the book, and now that's the book given to the Masons. So anyway, you can become a 33rd. Jesse James was a 33rd degree Mason. But I don't, I don't think they knew that it was Jesse James. They, they, they might have, and decided they'd better get him in there to make sure that he keeps silent about the fact that he's an alias and was a U.S. senator. That's my third book. It's all covered there. So anyway, now, in between there, those two, in the middle right here is a thing called the... Uh, the uh, <laughs> nice Templar? Shriners. Shriners. Oh. Nice Templars in a minute. There's a uh, Shriners. They're between. You, can, you have to be a 32nd degree or a 13th degree, and then you can join the Shriners. Now, maybe later we could talk about that, but that's what they mean. And you've seen them in the parades, you know, their little cars and their horses. They maybe have horses or they've got uh, uh, ambulances. Or fezzes. Motorcycles, yeah. right, skates even, whatever it is. So that's it. I, I was in Tombstone on Sunday and watched a bunch of masons come down the road in the parade and their little cars running around and they're having fun. So, but they claim that, that there's something wrong and maybe we'll cover it. We'll see. 
But that comes down. The Knights Temper is something different. 1,100 or so, nine men of noble birth, they were called Knights, decided to go to Jerusalem. I, did, I seem to remember that being a, a nation, but it's not. It's a city. So they went to Jerusalem, and they got permission from the mayor of Jerusalem in the 1100s to protect, that was the, the uh, public reason, they did that. Uh, they claimed that we're here to protect the pilgrims coming from Europe who want to walk where Jesus walked and see if they can find the cross and where was he buried and where was the, 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 the trial and who was and So we're going to protect them from the Arabs who are going to uh, attack them. There's not one recorded instance of that ever happening. Really? They never did protect anybody. But they were allowed to st stable their horses underneath the temple the temple level, the, the floor, the, the temple, two temples, I think there have been two, if I remember correctly, both were right. destroyed. They didn't destroy the layer underneath. That's still there. It still might be there today. And it was called Solomon's Stable. And they were allowed to stable their horses underneath there. And apparently Solomon had hundreds of stables. So they had seven or nine of them, wherever it was. So now, later on, they dug and found an enormous, and I mean an enormous, fortune buried by the Jews from the temple. Probably Solomon. Maybe they knew they were going to be attacked or something, so they took all the money and the wealth, and maybe even the the uh, the, uh, the ark and the, the menorah. Is that what you call it? The menorah and right. buried. But that's that's debatable. Let's leave that alone. But I do know they took. They found fortunes in gold. That money was transferred to Europe. They got their own ships. The Knights Templar had their own fleet. They brought it back to Europe. Now, what are you going to do with a huge fortune in gold? What do you want to put it to use? Do you want to create a banking system? And who did they loan the majority? The major, major company in, the, in Europe was the, the Catholic Church. The Vatican, yeah. Mm -hmm. He went to the Vatican and said, listen, We've got a fortune in gold. We can loan you the money to build these beautiful Gothic cathedrals, and that'll employ us and the Masons to build it for you. Because all of these Gothic they took 40 to 50 years to build a Gothic cathedral. And they're all over Europe, and some of them in America. That's another story, but let's go. The Europe, he built them for 13, 1100 to like 1300. But they also loaned the kings and popes. And in 1300-something, the Pope and the King of France got together and said, we got to stop this. I can't make the payments. They're demanding they want the kingdoms. And they said, that's right, they want to be the Pope. So we said, let's stop them. And they arrested, they got together and arrested 500 of the 4,000 members of the Knights Templar by that time. The others fled. They got out, but 500 of them didn't. And they took Jacques de Molay, the leader of the for had him in prison for well, a hundred years, and finally they put him on the cross on a on a stake and burned him at the cross. Wow! Uh, not a cross, but a stake. He died, and by the way, he threatened the Pope and, and the King. Within a year, both of them were dead. And guess what? Within a year, they were both dead. So, <laughs> yeah. Now that group, 
somehow became the international bankers. Now, I believe the guy that wrote the uh, book uh, Tragic, uh, Tragedy and Hope, uh, come to me in a minute, uh, he wrote the book Tragedy and Hope. And in the book, he names 13, 12 banking families. So, and he named the Rothschilds, and he named, uh, well, he named them in the book, but only by their last name, or their banking family, like the so-and-so family. And the Carol Quigley. Thank you, Carol Quigley. That's amazing. Please forgive me. That's part of this thing about getting old. You remember short deal. I remember the book, and I remember when it was, but I can't, at the moment, I couldn't think of the name. It's okay, Ralph. We'll work through it together. <laughs> <laughs> You're quick to do the Google search, aren't you? Anyway, <laughs> so anyway, they they uh, they scattered, and the 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 king of France sent letters out warning the, the other kings all over the Europe to beware the Knights Templars because they were out to destroy Christianity and also uh, take over the Pope. So the Pope issued letters, maybe to the kings, wherever it was, but they did that. But somehow it never got up to Scotland. So hundreds of, of uh, Scottish right uh, Knights Templar Masons ended up in Scotland, and when they got there, they created the Scottish right of Freemasonry. So that's where okay. the Scottish right comes from Scotland, from the Knights Templar. But the top right, top degree inside the York right is called the Knights Templar degree. So I don't know. That might be. I don't know. I cannot find the Knights Templar, the uh, York Rite. Uh, huh. So uh, there's a thing. Uh, if I open up this door, I'm going to offend people. I don't want to do that. So I'll just okay. let it let lay there, because I, I believe I know where, they, where they're where they're hiding. And I don't want to reveal that. That's something else. For these things, if I do that, people who are listening are say this guy Epperson's crazy. So I'm, I'm sure I'm doing a good job on my own. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the Knights Templar apparently somehow worked the deal out with these banking families that Quigley talked about. Maybe they're partners, or maybe they're the the Knights Templar are the silent partner. But remember what happened with the Colonel. He told me, he asked me, how much did I know about the Rothschilds? And I said, I know enough to know they're involved. Uh -huh. responded by saying, well, how do I know about the Seligmans and the Oppenheimers? Now, they're banking families as well. And that's when he got angry and said, you're not supposed to know about them. So uh -huh. that quickly revealed truth, because when I read the listing of the 12 banking families, I recognized only three of the names, including, by the way, the Seligmans. The Oppenheimers weren't in there, but the Seligmans were. But the other nine, I've never heard of which means uh -huh. they're buried, and so are the Knights Templars. So when, when Oak Island finds the treasure of the Knights Templar, it's going to mean something, because they came to this country even before Columbus. Right. So right. suddenly they're going to, I don't know, I'm not going to predict, I, I'm not even going to predict, I can only say that one of those programs that were on for two hours and a couple of weeks ago talked about the various the theories as to who's who's uh, the treasure, and the top one ended up being the Knights Templar. So I'm uh -huh. guessing that it's going to be the Knights Templar. But that's predicting. I can't. I'm not involved except watching it on TV. But urge you, please tune that in. It's going to be a revelation. 
Because they huh. found something big. And, and uh, there's only one little clue. One of the two partners funding that thing said, it's, re it's real. Or, it's really real. And that's all you see is the little clip lasts for 10 seconds. And then the other guys talk. So he's saying it's really, really real. That might mean they found out. And it's going to be covered starting November the 8th. So I'm urging you, if you want to pursue this, all of you need to study this. Because point out to you, if you do not know the Masons, you do not know history. There are that worldwide. Okay. Wow. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. This is probably the most despicable thing I've ever done is being a conspiracy realist. But I'm going to tell you the truth. I, I did this and I'm proud of it. And you're going to say that's a terrible thing to do. Well, you might not say that. I'll tell you the truth. During that tour of the country, I ended up in a, a city adjacent to Hyde Park, New York. So I said, I didn't know. So he said, listen, uh, uh, the neighboring city is Hyde Park and Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt had that as their home, their summer home. Uh, 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 yeah, summer home. Right. Yeah, because it's uh, warm or gets, or maybe the winter home because they it, no, it'd be winter, it'd be snowing. No, it'd be summer. Winter be down south somewhere. Yeah. It was the home where they were on Roosevelt's. So he gave me his car. And let me. He told me how to get there, and I took a map. And I didn't have a GPS, but I I found it and I went there. So I walked through the museum. I saw the things and cars he drove and the things, he speeches he gave and pictures of him and the family and what he did and everything. You know. And so I walked outside. And there is a concrete uh, a, a box. I don't have a box like this sitting on this on the ground with one more on top. And it's all concrete. One, uh -huh. There's no sign. They didn't. They put them in there and then built this around it because they buried Franklin and Eleanor side by side, and it was concrete. And when you walked in, there was only one end. There was a huge hedge. I would guess ten feet tall, uh, tailored. So that when you walked in, you had a, you could walk around the thing, or maybe get ten people, and they talk to you. You could say, or your group went in there, so maybe, so you could stand maybe ten people around this concrete, whatever it was, keeping the the temple, the bodies of, uh, of Franklin and Eleanor. So I went in there by myself, and I looked around, and nobody could see me, and I spat on that <laughs> concrete slab. Because of what those people did to world the world as such, Frank yeah. Roosevelt murdered 53 million people. Yeah, Eleanor Roosevelt lent her support, maybe just by name, to 82 known communist fronts, as determined by the House Committee on Un-American Activities when it was alive and, and active. So they were communists. Both of them were. Franklin, right. hear me out. Franklin was promised the presidency of the world government to be named the United Nations after the war was over. And that's why he ran for the third and later the fourth term. And unfortunately, he died before it was created. But he right. was living that. He was promised that by the conspiracy that planned World War One, World Wars One and Two. Mm -hmm. So that, forgive me, I know that wasn't respectful, but it was 
because I know about the 53 million people that they murdered. And you could have done a lot worse, Ralph. <laughs> you know, so that was kind of a drop in the bucket compared to what you could have done. <laughs> I have a dry mouth, but I was able to find I found, found some. And I said that, and I walked out proudly and said, I should have done that maybe because that's not respectful, but I did it because for the memory of the 53 million people Franklin murdered. Right, right. Okay, listen to this, guys. Hold on. Everybody saw the movie 2001, is that it? Right. And 2010, yeah. Yeah, okay, let's take it one by one. 2001 was the first movie where the monkeys were were uh, eating uh, what uh, uh, some animal, and they were purely pulling the bones out and then leaving them on a stack. And finally, one of them, they, a bunch of other monkeys came up, and uh, they started just, well, we want to eat with you. And they said, no, you can't, because we're going to... And one of them picked up a bone and uh, decided to, to use it as a way to protect their... And that was the first tool and the first evidence that the man was going to evolve into a bunch of barbarians. So they had that, they had that uh, black, it looked like the United Nations building. Uh, it was a black marble, and it was showed up in various places. Right. And, and when they got to Jupiter, or wherever it was, when they landed, they found another one on the Jupiter. So that was 2001, and then the movie came out in 2010. And as I remember, I watched that movie, and at the very end of it, our astronauts are orbiting Jupiter, and one of them got the meters and running. He said, "Listen, something's going on in Jupiter. We better get out of here." And they did. And when, as as I remember, the the, the camera's out in space, and you could see this little probe. It was big, but it was very small, coming towards you. And then it zoomed on by by the camera, and then the the planet Jupiter lit up. Right. So now little Ralphie's in in. Uh, uh, Las Vegas giving a speech to a, uh, it was a Sunday school, a large, apparently the Sunday school was a, uh, did, all the members weren't members of this Sunday school, but the Sunday school invited me to speak in the church. So they got to the, to the whole body, but then the basement, and I went there, there were probably 50 or 70 people all from the Sunday school. So I lectured, and one of the guys came up and said, listen, Ralph, you got to read this book by Bill Cooper. And I said, no, I haven't read it. So he said, listen, let me show you this. He said that during the year 1999, the planet Jupiter is going to light up. And I said, it's not going to be, after I started thinking about it, it's not going to be uh, the year. It's going to be the end of the year. They're going to light it up on December 31st. Now, as you and I talked about, just I'll repeat that. There's one split second when all of the 24 time zones are on the same day. But the very next second, it's Happy New Year for that time zone. Right. And the next time zone has 11 o'clock. And then when they get to new, uh, midnight, then it's their Happy New Year. And it goes around the planet. There's 24 of them. So there's 24 separate Happy New Years all around. And then it's January 2nd. But there's one split second, precisely on the same day, December 31st, when they were going to announce their arrival of the New World Order by lighting up the planet Jupiter. Uh -huh. now, Jupiter is not 
and you know, I'm hitting my desk, which means it's not solid. It's all gas. It's all gas. There is no planet inside of it. Right. Yes, I think it's comparable. In Mars, we have a planet. The moon is a, you know, it's got a rock. All the other, Jupiter, maybe in Uranus, and the others are all rock. But Jupiter is not. It's all gas. And the scientists say it has the proper ingredients to be a sun. Mm-hmm. But it didn't have enough mass to create the heat to light it. Right. So it's there. And Galileo, this NASA sent up a probe called Galileo. That was in the book by Bill Cooper. The probe was launched in 85, I think it was. So it's going to take them 15 years to get there, and then maybe over to And then sometime during that year of 1990, according to Cooper, they're going to light it up. Well, I'm the guy that said it's going to happen on the 1st of January. So then, sure enough, in the movie, 2010, the planet Jupiter lights up. And at the end of the movie, they show a, a, a foggy uh, London with the, with the sun. You, you know, it's very foggy. You can just barely see it. And then off to the right up is a small little dot. Being Jupiter's now <coughs> sun, it burns. It lit uh-huh. up. Uh-huh. And then they show Japan with it, Jupiter, and then they covered Hawaii, the beaches or something. So it could have lit up. So it was supposed to happen on the 1st of January. Now, I'm going to be very candid with you. I honestly believed that the New World it was going to kill the majority of the people on this planet at precisely midnight, December 31st. Now, you say, that's crazy, Ralph. We all worried about uh, uh, the leap year there, the year our computers were not going to go in. Right, UK. Yeah. UK. I'm saying this is going to happen precisely at midnight. So I remembered that when I was in Tampa, during that time when I was interviewed by the station, I went there to lecture, I gave that speech, and uh, I mentioned that the, the, uh, uh, the planet was going to light up on the first agenda. This was said maybe in 1990 or something, I don't know. It must have been after my second book, so it was 1990. I said, watch, watch, because it's going to light up on the first uh, I said first of January, we mean December 31st. And so a guy came up afterwards and said, that's not, that's not possible, Ralph. I said, I'm telling you, it's going to happen. Well, how do you know that? I told Bud Cooper, and I said, I'm the guy that said it's going to happen at midnight. So he said, listen, I'm going to, he was an amateur uh, astronomer, uh, you know, like I'm an amateur historian. Uh, I'm, of course, I sell books, so I'm really, okay. But anyway, anyway, he said he was not, didn't work for NASA, but he knew friends of his work at NASA. So he took this story to NASA and they said it's 95% probable that if something, if it had a, a, a spark, it would light up. Now, when I read the book 2061, which is the third book in the series, all written by Arthur C. Clarke, who, by the way, had the ear of NASA. He's the one that came up with the idea that you could put a satellite up and have it stay there as the Earth rotates underneath it. Geosynchronal, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> So that was the, that was his contribution, or maybe it went with it. In other words, it was stationary above a certain spot, or maybe it was stationary the Earth, whatever it was. I don't remember, but it was something. He he was the one that came up with that idea, whatever it was. So mm-hmm. he listen to this on page thirteen, the number of Lucifer. Page thirteen, he calls the burning planet Jupiter Lucifer. Right. 
Clark knew, didn't he? Uh-huh. Bet. He's the guy that came up with the idea of Jupiter burning, being caused by something, and it apparently something to do with that black, uh, call it what you want to, that black thing that shows up all over the place. So I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Let me finish with my thought. So I made two sheets of paper like this, and each one had 24 lines on it, and I could move them like this. So I took it to uh, to the first one and did that. This would be January 1st, and, I, and underneath the, uh, uh, what do they call it, the meridian, where it starts the 40, 20, the 24-hour cycle. Oh, yeah, so, the Greenwich, Greenwich mean, yeah. Thank you. So that's, uh-huh. well, that's where it's going to start. They're going to show it, blind it up there. And, uh, and I sat there, forgive me, I, I'm, I'm being honest with you. I honestly sat there on the 31st of December, maybe at 11 o'clock, two, or maybe at 8 o'clock, when I had the, the two slides of paper, way before the, the, the meridian, maybe by two hours. And I said, Father, if, if you're going to take me home tonight, I want you to know I'm, I'm ready to come. And I, can, I want to meet you, eyeball to eyeball, I want to meet Jesus. Please take me, I'm ready to go. So I sat there to expect, I, I expected to die precisely at midnight because they're going to light up the Jupiter and also kill a lot of people. Right, right. It didn't happen. So then I, I remember reading about George Bush, the father, agreed in 1990 that he would be at the Great Pyramid of Giza on December 31st, because that's where the, the Pyramid of Giza, which is a temple of initiation into the ancient mystery religion of Lucifer worship. That tomb, uh-huh. the pyramid was not built as a tomb. It never had a tomb in it. It never had a body in it. It's a temple of initiation. Right. So uh, I said they're going to put the capstone on it, and that's the, the eye above the pyramid. The eye of the pyramid's got to land on the pyramid, and when that happens, the Novos Ordo Seclarum was going to start on the back right. of the dollar bill, the New World Order. So I said, that's when they're going to do it, because George Bush agreed I'll be there, and they had a, they had a ceremony, dancers and lights and things, and Happy New Year, when it was precisely, they were going to put a gold crown on it, a pyramid, to cap it, because the Great Pyramid and the other pyramids built by the Egyptians don't have a capstone. Uh-huh. Well, this would be the first one, the one on our dollar bill, which is above the, the pyramid, like this. Here's the eye, and here's the pyramid. They are flat, and it's going to land. And when that happens, the noble sort of succumb on the bottom part of the is going to start. So it didn't happen. So I said, well, maybe then I went and watched, and I found out when, when the Egyptian thing would be next. Maybe it was three hours difference. I don't remember. But anyway, I sat there waiting again. It didn't happen then. I said, well, obviously... Since I'm prepared to die, it's maybe they're going to do it to me. When they, I'm going to be the one to bring it in. They're going to nuke Tucson. So I'm, I'm, and it didn't happen then either. In fact, I went for all 24 hours. Well, of course, I ate and slept and everything else. You know, and got up and ate breakfast. But I kept checking. Of course, when I got up at 9 o'clock Tucson time, it was probably 23 of the Happy New Year's that happened. So I knew that I'm that far still alive. So I got through the whole day and I said, well, something changed because it was scheduled. By the way, I don't know if you know this, the Great Pyramid is the triangle. Right. Uh, we're going to take this line here on the right side of the pyramid and we're going to extend it down into the dirt. 
for as long as you want. And then we're going to take what they call the, uh, there's a, uh, this is a, uh, there's a, uh, a, a walking. The King's Chamber? Yeah, the King's Chamber's up above, and you, you walk up a, a slope, and then you get to a platform, and you can crawl, you have to crawl to get into the King's Chamber. Uh-huh. So that implies that, and if you take this line, this one of the, of the, uh, the walkway, the Great Temple, uh, the, where it's called Chamber, you can take that line down here to where it meets in the dirt, and that line from that, that jurisdiction of where the, the King's Chamber is, that line, this is called, when they meet, it's called the Eris Edge. And that line is 6,000 pyramid inches. On the, when you go through, you, you don't walk into the King's Chamber. You walk and then there's a, you have to slide, you've got to crawl on your hands and knees, stand up again, and then crawl on your hands and knees again, and stand up, and then you can walk into the king's chamber. So that section is flat. That's where they get in there. But that's where this line ends. There's no more. The line ends. You now climb up the thing, you get to the top, and you walk in. That is called the Eris, which is in another book. And I discovered it's on the side of that area. There's a little thing about this big, I'm guessing the size of a quarter, and it's called the, uh, there's a word for it, a bumper uh, knob, knob or something, and it's, it's one pyramid inch, and it was put there for you to use it as a way to measure the entire pyramid. Right, it's, right. It's built on the wall, which means it's inside, it's not on the outside where someone can chisel it, you've got to have a chisel, but it's there, it's still there today. So they take that measurement and measure down this line to the Aris edge where it meets the outside line like this. So that that line from the walkway down to this point is 6,000 inches long. And that means to me it's 6,000 years of the, of the uh, uh, Earth. Uh-huh. Hey, Ralph, I just did some math while you were talking. If you take that 6,000 and you divide it by 18, because 18 is the, uh, from your fingertip to, to most people's elbow is 18 inches. Okay. That's supposed to be a cubit. Yes. So if you take that 6,000 and divide it by uh, 18, guess what number it comes up to be? Go. 333.3333333. Please go slow. Say that again. If you take that um, 6,000 inches and divide it by 18, which is a cubit, 18 inches is a cubit. Yes. You get the number 333.333333, and it's infinite. Right, exactly. And the 33rd degree, right? Uh, Yes, I've never heard that before. By the way, let's talk about the 33rd degree. Uh, I I, I got to know a chiropractor, and uh, he showed me once. I went to chiropractor, and he was kind of work. Uh, on my back, so when he gave me a, a picture, a diagram, and it's it's got the uh, all of the uh, all of the, the vertebrae are, have a point on your body. So when they when they touch you here on your belly, it's going to hit the seventeenth one. But when you hit this one, it's on your toes, and this one's your. But there's thirty two of those, huh. and the thirty third, which is connected, is the brain. Huh. The brain is the thirty third vertebrae. It's connected. It's all connected. Uh-huh. But you don't stop at 32, because those are the vertebrae. You don't call the bone the skull. 
but that's where the mind is. Right. Albert Pike wrote, reason, it is in it we must worship. We worship the mind in the 33rd degree temple. Oh, my goodness. That's what it means. Uh-huh. That's why the 33rd degree is all involved with the mind and the brain and the reason and everything else. Now, here's something else to get throw at you, too, Ralph. It says that when the Antichrist comes, he's going to stand in the temple declaring himself to be God. So if your brain is the temple, perhaps the the image of the beast is actually has something to do with with implanting the uh, the Antichrist into the 33rd vertebrae, which is the, the mind. Well, maybe he takes over like he, the demon took over the, the colonel. Yeah. I know. I, when, when, once I got started getting into this thing, boy, it boggles the mind. You could, you could go 27 different ways. So You're not kidding. I leave it there. I know what I... Okay. Got. I'm the guy that talked about the, uh, the, the feathers... Uh, there's a the right and the left. There's a one more feather on one side than the other. And by the way, the eagle's looking towards his right wing, and that's got the 33 feathers. Hey, that's Ralph, what 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 direction is? Uh, I know that he's holding uh, he's holding uh, what is it? All the branches in one claw and, and arrows in the other. So uh, the 33rd, the side that has the 33, which side has the? Uh, is it the side with the, the, the olive branches or the side with the, uh, e- the, the arrow. arrows? Arrow. Is it the arrows? I think the olive branch is on, his, uh, yeah. on the other side. Yeah, I think it is the... Uh, someone get a dollar bill out quick and you could confirm it. Well, I think yeah. this is. I'll, I'll tell you what, let's, let's get a dollar bill out and I'll do it. I just have to have one probably because I just paid my taxes. So I, well, <laughs> a bunch of cobwebs in here. I don't know where they come from. <laughs> no, I got I got to pay my my uh, my property taxes in. Uh, oh, they they if they're due to October the first, but they allow you to uh, a one month leeway. So on uh-huh. the fifth of October, I'll send it in. I'm going to keep my money for an extra three weeks. There you go. How bad it is, God! I I hate to say I don't. I, people, I've heard paid thousands of dollars. My taxes are seventeen hundred dollars a year. Uh-huh. I pay it twice. Yeah, the right hand side. No, no, it's the other way around. The right hand side has got the uh, got the uh, uh, the leaves. Okay. And the other side's got the arrows. So uh-huh. he's looking to the right, and that's where the leaves of uh, peace are. Hmm. Or it could also mean the acacia acacia leaf. That's yeah. true. That's true. But if it is if it is olive branches, and uh, and the olive branch stands for peace. Uh, the Bible talks about the Antichrist uh, coming with words of peace and conquering with peace. Well, listen, do, do, while you're, you're, since you're honking with the computer, why don't you do this? Why don't you type in uh, acacia tree leaves? And let's see what the leaves look like. Maybe you can find out. Okay. Yeah, the acacia. Let me tell you, while you're doing that, let me tell you why that's important. They, uh, uh, Osiris... Isis, Osiris, was the sun god, and uh, he was killed or died or something, and they chopped him up, and uh, they found his body, or maybe, forgive me, the male organ, under an acacia tree, and the acacia leaves 
were, according to the Egyptians, were uh, resurrection. Uh huh. Uh, Osiris was resurrected, I guess, after he was buried under an acacia tree or something. That, that's vaguely something along the line. But maybe you can see what an acacia leaf looks like. <clears throat> the acacia leaf, it's, uh, it's uh, I don't know if you've ever seen a honey locust. Um, it's it's a, a long stalk with uh, with leaves that are, are perpendicular, I mean, uh, across from one another. Then this particular one has 19 leaves on it, uh, 18 with one at the head. So it's, um, have you ever seen a mimosa tree? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Or, yeah. So anyway, that's basically. What I wish I could. I wish I could show it. Okay. Well, let me right. say. Let me describe what's on the back of the dollar bill. There's the stem, and then leaves come off of it. But the leaf, there's only a very short stem till you get to the leaf. On all uh-huh. the. Now, if that's what you got from the acacia, then maybe these are acacia leaves. But if, if they're different, in other words, the the top leaf apparently just. Was opened up and it's got it's. I bet if the leaf is two inches long, it's probably a quarter inch the stem, and maybe uh-huh. a quarter inch on all of the leaves on the you know from that point down. That's the best. Okay. Uh, let's see. Where's the? I'm gonna here. Let me minimize this and then I can kind of. Can you see that? Oh, yeah. No. That, that. No. That's not what we see. No. I know. That. That. That is what. That's the. That's the, that's the acacia. Oh my gosh! No, that's not no no. That's yeah. not. Thank you very much for that. No, You're welcome. That's, that's not. So those are not acacia leaves, then. Uh-huh. Maybe you said they're olive branch uh, right. uh, uh, leaves, and like yeah. you said, olive branch apparently means you were going to have peace. Right. By the way, yes, yesterday I heard. I, I watched a tape by Stuart Crane back in the '80s, and he said there have been 250 wars since the United Nations was formed to be a wow. peace Two hundred and fifty wars and the United Nations is a peacekeeper. Right. You understand? No, it's not. It's a war maker. War maker, you bet. It just stands by, does nothing. Uh huh. They they there were there were times when in Tatanga, which I guess was an uh, African nation where they created a United Nations force and they put a blue berets on their heads and they all I remember there was a bunch of doctors in Katanga who had patients and the patients were all being killed by these United Nations forces and the nurses that were working there were all raped by the United Nations forces. In other words, they were a real peacekeeper. Right. right. Partook of killing people and that's the way to keep people okay, that's enough. Okay, can we go on now? Yeah, sure. Okay, little Ralphie Epperson, sitting in an airplane, minding my own business. Now, you and I talked about this, so this will be a repeat. You you know this story, but I just told you a day or two ago. So I'm sitting there. I always get an aisle seat because I'm 6'1", and I I can stretch out a little bit more and put my my left leg out in the aisle while there's no one walking, and I can relax. So I'm sitting there in an aisle seat. I'm going to say in row 23 in the back. And the, the plane, the captain said, we're, we got to wait because there's a, a passenger we're, we're waiting for, but he's on the way. He'll be here quickly. So there's only one seat left in the entire airplane. So we're all waiting, sitting, and who is it but Bruce Babbitt. He's, oh, I don't know who that. Yes, you do. Bruce Babbitt was Clinton's 
Secretary of the Interior, and he was also a uh, governor, and I I don't think he was a senator, but he was a governor who got two terms in, and then ran or was appointed Secretary of the Interior for Bill Clinton, which means he was on a, at a cabinet-level position. And there were thoughts that he was going to uh, run for the presidency. So now, uh, at this point, I, I cannot remember whether he sat beside me and there was the only seat that was available, because it seems like I asked if he was going to run for the presidency, but I didn't do that in the second part of the story, so I, don't, I guess it wasn't, but anyway, that's, my memory's a little vague on that, but in any way, I think he was up ahead of me in the middle seat, up about row five. Now, he didn't get first class, but they, they knew he was a man of some importance, so they held the airplane because he was in Las Vegas going to fly to Phoenix where he lived. So I said, boy, I got a chance to talk to Bruce Pavard. I'm the guy, the famous author of The Unseen Hand. Everybody knows that. So I, I, and you know, as you get off an airplane, the first rows have to get their air, their luggage out of the thing. So it takes a while to get back to my row. And so I got out of there as quick as I could, hopefully to stay as close as I could to Babbitt, who was ahead of me, getting his luggage out. Then he got off the airplane. And I had to wait for other students. So I got out of there. I went into the, you know, the room where they seat people are waiting to, to be for the next airplane flight. So I got there and I couldn't find him. So I gathered, oh yeah, I lost him. He's gone into the main aisle. To uh, He was met by seven people and he's gonna go walk away and I'll have to run down because he's gonna go for his luggage. I'll go for my luggage and I'll maybe see him and I'll catch him. But anyway, he stopped where the, the room wall met the lobby, the, the walkway, the aisle. So he's waiting there for someone to come and recognize him and see, oh, there's Bruce. We'll go pick him up and take him on his air in our car. So I went up to him and said, uh, Mr. Babbitt. Oh, yes, sir. So I said, I'm Ralph Everson from Tucson. It's nice meeting you, sir. So I want to thank you for your service to Secretary of the Interior. And I said, listen, I, I also know you're a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He said, yeah, I am. I said, uh, do you know what they represent or what they do? Or, yeah, it's just a meeting. We meet. And I, I said, uh, Mr. Babbitt. It's more than that, and you know it's more than that, because I know that you know. If you're a regular member, you attend their meetings, and they're secret. And the reason they're secret is they don't want us to know. Well, some of us do know. I'm telling you, Mr. Becker, I wrote a book about the CFR, and parts of it, on the CFR. And I'm telling you, I'm going to give you a copy of that book if you'll let me, tell me you'll read it. And by the way, I'm maybe a little bit more emphasis now than I was at the time. And maybe I was a little bit softer, because I'm speaking a little bit too quickly, maybe. I did. I don't like to do that. I was not trying to browbeat him, but I basically led to the point where I know you're a member of the CFR. And then I, when I've written a book that covers that, I would urge you to read. He said, yeah, I'll be interested. So I said, he gave me his business card. And he, I said, Mr. Babbitt, please, you got to read the book. I, I guarantee you it's going to be an eye-opener because I don't think you know about what they're into. And I said, what they really present. So, no, I'll read your book. So I gave him the card I never heard from. But this was once another example of, like with Pat Robertson, I knew he wouldn't get to be on his TV show, but I'm not responsible for that. I'm responsible for trying to get on the program. I'm responsible to have a he, God gave me a chance to talk to Bruce Babbitt, who had a cabinet-level position with the, with the government and a CFR member, which means he's part of the power brokers, he gave me a chance to talk to him. I'm not going to shirk my duty. I'm going to talk. And politely, I mean, please understand, I might have sounded a little bit 
more terse wherever it is than I was because I was trying to be, you know, nice and friendly and I want you to read my book. He said he would. So he did and I never heard from him. I actually wrote to him again at his law firm and said, uh, please, uh, uh, maybe you haven't read the book yet, but please do so and then get back to me. I never heard from him. Huh. So God opens up doors for me and I, I, I do everything I can to walk through them. Okay. Right. right. Three... I think I said this already to you earlier, but I want your listeners to know, and I'm being very candid with you. I'm going to tell you exactly what happened. I'm not doing this to boast. I want you to know that people admire me in that book, The Unseen Hand. I've had three men separately, and maybe separated by years, but each one of these is so incredible, I remembered the details and then said, well, you're the second one that did after I got off the That's the second time this happened. And it happened a third time, maybe three years later. Three people who told me they were PhDs read my book and said, this book is doctoral thesis quality. Oh, that's okay. Something fell over. That's what it was. that noise. It wasn't. Not a threat against me coming through the window to my left. <laughs> but I didn't duck. I just heard something. Okay, so now he said it's quality of a could could be a doctoral thesis with a couple of minor corrections. And I said one guy said he he said to a friend of mine who met him in Phoenix and the PhD a double PhD he told me told him. He said, Ralph's friend, have you ever read his book? He said, no. But I said, yeah, I did read his book. I want you to tell him that book is Ph.D. quality. So that was number two. The third guy was a phone call from Hawaii, as I remember. So three of these men. Now, please, I don't know these men were Ph.D.s. They told me they were. But the point was that even if they weren't, they were praising my book. Right, right. The book is still the classic. It's mm-hmm. still being sold. 33 or 34 years later, my second book, The New World Order, is still being published and sold. Just the other day, I took in orders from my wholesaler, $2,500. A couple of months before that, I sold $20,000 of the book. So it's still selling. I'm not getting risk because it takes a, i got to save money to print it. But I want you to know that. But here's the classic story. Listen to this. There Ralph, I think I've told you this story, and... Uh, uh, you can respond if you wish. But I'm going to tell it to your listeners because I think they should know this. I, I was doing a gun show thinking that the people who own guns know that the conspiracy is after their guns. I said, if anyone wants to know that, and I know that, I can prove it. I said, my book should sell up there, but they don't sell because they know they're not going to get their guns even if they try, so they don't care about my book. But anyway, I'm buying my It was a Saturday, Sunday... And at 4 o'clock, they shut it down, so the people are told to leave, and then the people who got their tables there can start setting them up and then getting them out to the car, the truck, wherever it is, or the UPS. Or, so so I'm standing there, just maybe 3.45. I'm waiting for the last guy to walk by. If it's only one person, I've, I've only wasted 15 minutes of my time. But anyway, I gave him the last person who leaves by my desk, he can look at my table. So a young man walks by, I'm guessing, estimate, late 20s, maybe a veteran or something, GI Bill, I don't know. But he was not a typical hippie-looking young man. He was a little older. And um, 
carrying a backpack. He walked by, and uh, the the the, uh, uh, the, the city. Uh, uh, I live in Tucson. The University of Arizona is down here, but up in Phoenix in Tempe, which is a uh, a, a suburb of, of uh, Phoenix, there's Arizona State. So he was, I gathered, was an ASU student. So he walked by, he looked at my table, and I'm not a huckster. Hey, guys, I got the snake oil here, Dr. Jefferson's snake oil, guaranteed to cure your ills. All you got to do is pay me a dollar and then buy it. I'll, get, I'll tell you what, I'll give you two for one today. You know, I don't do that. If they show an interest, I watch them by a light. And if they show some interest or wink or something, I respond or say, you know, I'll look at they're going to stop. I'll get, come talk to me. So he stopped. I never said a word. He turned around and looked at me and said, do, are you, did you write that book, which was on his end of the table? Now, as he walked past the first book, the second book, the third book, and he was looking at the fourth book, which was my unseen hand. So he looked at that black book and said, did you write? And he pointed towards the unseen hand. And I said, well, here it comes. I'm going to say yes, probably. Yes, I said, yes, I did. He said, I want you to know something. He said, I am within a month or so of completing my master's degree. And he said, I want you to know that I read your book. And he said, I learned more about my subject of political science in your book of 500 pages than I've learned since high school, elementary school. In other words, I've wasted 18 years of my life and I learned more in your 500-page book than 18 years of education has taught me. Wow, that's amazing. That's powerful. Yeah. I, I'm almost in tears. I said, uh, my friend, I want you to know, I wrote the book for you. Mm-hmm. He said, I'm going on for my PhD. And I said, well, and you know, you can't talk about this. But I'm telling you, when you get a chance, talk about it and get other PhDs to read it because we got a nation to save. And he said, yes, I know. And he walked away. Aww. I'll tell you, that, 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 and I got one more similar story. I got some time. I'm finished with this. 2.30 in the morning, I'm sleeping Saturday, minding my own business. And I get a phone call. Uh-huh. <laughs> Hello? Are you Ralph Everson? <laughs> Last time I checked, yes, I was, I am, yes. What can I do? He says, well, I know it's 2.30, but I had to call you. I said, well, go ahead. What's your story? She said, listen, I am the secretary to an executive for a fortune, I don't know whether it's 500 or 400, but she said, if I told you the name, you would recognize it. So I can't tell you who I work for, and I won't, but I'm telling you, I work for the executive, the president. I'm an executive-level secretary. So I'm guessing she was in late 30s, maybe early 40s. That's just a guess. She said, I want you to know I read your book. I said, okay, thank you. Well, she said, let me tell you what happened. I just returned from a trip, two-week vacation from San Francisco, where I live, to Australia. My brother works down there. So I went down there to get away and uh, took my two-week vacation. So I got there and he picked me up and we got sitting to put the luggage down and down and talking and maybe have a drink or hamburger or something. He said, just while you're here, by the way, she told me. She said, read that book. She said, what book? I said, what book? He said, the book on the coffee table. I don't want to read. I'm here to relax and I don't read. You know that I don't read. You've got to read this book, sis. I don't, I don't read. Sis, read the book. You're going to have time. 
I was still working during the day. You cannot just sit in the sun for eight hours, pick up the book and read it. So she walked over and read the title, The Unseen Hand, An Introduction to the Conspiratorial View of History. And I said, read. She said, I picked it up. Okay, I'll read it. She said, I couldn't put it down. She read the book for two weeks, or at least as much time as she could. She said she finished it on the airplane flight back from Australia, which means huh. she had, what is that, eight-hour flight, six hours, whatever it is. Oh, That's more than that, more like 12 hours, yeah. Whatever it is, she finished the book, so she had maybe half of it, I don't know. And she said, I knew I had to call you and talk to you, even at 2.30, I'm sorry. I said, no, go ahead, What's the finish it. She said, I want you to know, I know you're right. And she said, I have not voted in my entire life. I have no interest in reading, no interest in history. I'm an executive secretary. I work for a boss. He tells me what to do, and I'm getting paid well, and I live high, and I'm, you know, maybe in the small circles of my friends, we get together. I want you to know you've changed my life. That book has changed my life. And I said, well, trust me, I'm stunned by that. That's my last story in that connection. Wow. Listen, you're, uh, I can tell you're, uh, Getting drowsy, and I understand that. Who, yeah, me? Yeah, you. Yes. If you hey, want, it's only six. It's only six forty-five. Well, you. It's up to you. You will keep going. But you're. I can see. Well, maybe you're still. You. I'm. I don't want to try to embarrass you, but your your viewers can see it. You're sitting there with your eyes half open, and I'm talking, and you can see. Oh my God! What are you finding? And what are you doing? Please help. No, me. I'm looking at you. As my eyes are down like this. Oh, see? Yeah, I'll settle for that. Thank you. Yeah. I forgive, forgive me for thinking you were asleep. Oh, no, no, by any means. something you might enjoy. The Wizard of Oz won the movie for the best picture in 1939. I think it was 39. Mm -hmm. There are over a hundred mistakes made in that movie. <laughs> I'm telling you, I've got a list of them. Uh -huh. And I'm working on coordinating the list because it's not in sequence so it's going to say well the lion's tail you can see the, the corner of his uh, shorts or something and it doesn't tell you when that happened in the movie so I've got to find that spot in the movie and then key it to number 27 or whatever it is so I'm right. working on that and I'm telling you if anyone wants a copy of that so you can watch the movie even though it's it, you can watch it for pure entertainment I watch it every year around Thanksgiving. It'll be on pretty soon, I guess. It'll be showing it around Thanksgiving, which is, it's a great movie, and I'll watch it again, even though I, I feel Ray Bolger stole that movie. He's, that Scarecrow character, was, he was made for him. So anyway, <laughs> I, I'm going to key it so that you can know for certain, okay, when the Scarecrow said something, something happened that was not, you don't even see it, but when you know it's going to happen, you're going to look for it and see it. I'll tell you one, one little clue. Well, I'll give you two. I gave you two. Here's the length of Dorothy's hair on her braids changes throughout the whole movie. It's only one day she's there, but it changes. In this scene, it's 12 inches long. In the next scene, in another part of the movie, uh, it's 9 inches long. And then there was that 8 inch or 10 inches long. And then it was 6 inches long, So which means they didn't have a standard wig to give her. They gave her one, and they kept shooting movies. Sometimes when she kicks her heels or dances, she's not wearing the red rubies. Uh, they're, they're black. 
Nintendo hidden oil man. You can see something uh, he did or something. So these are all cute. And I'm, if people want that, find my address or call me. Let me know, and I'll make sure I get it finished. I'll send you a copy. And if you want to watch it, you can watch it as well. I think that's something. <laughs> I love that movie. It's a classic. By the way, there are also people that understand it's far deeper than that. The second story is that it was the Tin Man represented industry, the Lion represented, I think, the media, and Dorothy represented the American people, and the Scarecrow was the farmer. And the story Oz means ounce of gold. And it was oh, all wow. gold standard. So when they marched on the on the the the, uh, the, uh, the Yellow Brick Road, they were marching on gold, bricks of gold, and they showed, they ended up in the uh, ouch, the city called uh, Oz, and that's, the story was about that. But it's even deeper than that, and that's the story, I'd have to do some research, but I read about it, and I said, that's, I think I saved it in a book or something, but it's even deeper than that, that Frank Baum was a theosophist. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that means, I don't. I wish I could tell you right now from memory, and I can't do it. But it's something. There's something really sinister in the whole story, and that's the real secret, not the fact that. Oh, the other part that you could look for is I think it was after the scarecrow got off got off the thing in there. Now Dorothy. No, it must have been the Dorothy. The 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 line was next, I think, and then uh, the the scarecrow, Dorothy, and the lion. And then Toto, and they start to dance. The yellow, we're on the way to the yellow. They bring the road on the way to the Oz or whatever. The wizard, down and they're singing. And they're dancing up the road, and they're on the, the yellow brick road. It goes up like a slope, like it would be for jumping for the guys at the Olympics. And at the very top, you can see the horizon. And if you look while, you're, while they're dancing, you look at the top, and something swings out. It's big. It's like maybe like a duffel bag size, you know, it's small, it's only probably a quarter inch high, but you would guess it's about the size of a duffel bag, swings out halfway into the, uh, into the above the yellow brick road, and then swings back. And people who have tried to analyze it think it was a munchkin who committed suicide. Huh. Tied a rope around his neck for whatever reason and decided during that scene to commit suicide. <laughs> he jumped out and hung himself, and it swung back. But then they said, no, it was a, a part of the falling prop. So one of the stories was that, uh, but one of them, was, uh, I don't know. It's just interesting to look for it and see you can decide what you think it is. But that's uh -huh. one of the ones that I remember. You know, uh, Kathy O'Brien in her book, uh, Transformation of America, said that the uh, her handlers... Uh, a lot of times used the sim symbolism from uh, the Wizard of Oz in order to trigger her into doing different activities. Yes. Yeah. Well, if you don't mind, I don't have this list, but I want to tell you one more story. I think it involves the uh, the, the Franklin case. Remember that book, the Franklin book, or the Franklin case, or the Franklin abuse? There was a some guy that owned a savings and loan company was getting involved with uh, child abuse. And uh, the book, the guy that wrote the book was on our side, and he wrote the book to explain it. And he said that that uh, that one of the guys who was uh, being abused 
to, to calm him down on the table, Mickey Mouse showed up. Right. Now, why would they, forgive me, we don't know if that's true, but let's say that it is true. It's a memory of a man who was being abused, and Mickey Mouse showed up. Now, what was that about? My guess was, like you said, characters from the Wizard of Oz are there to say, listen, this is fun. Enjoy it. It's us. Look at, you know, I'm Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz, and just lie down and enjoy it. And you remember, right. maybe Mickey Mouse was there to tell this young man. It's a young man who later grew up and remembered this, and he told the story to the guy writing the book. Mickey Mouse uh-huh. showed up. Uh-huh. That's scary. Well, that's enough. Okay. Oh, hey, listen. Ralphie, you, you will salute. You're better work. You fought you fought World War Two and won, didn't you? You were the one that caused World War Two to win and you came back as a hero, you remember? Or you don't remember? You didn't fight World War Two? No. <laughs> well, <laughs> my father was too young for World War Two. Hey, okay, uh, Lou Ralphie joins the reserves. Uh, now I, I made you promise not to laugh and because I told you the story yesterday. But I think your listeners have to know about my great success as a reservist. Listen to this, baby. I'm going to tell you, I succeeded. I joined the reserves in my end of my freshman year. So I was there at the U of A for three, about three and a half years. So I signed up, I think, for four years. Uh, and uh, uh, my company commander, since I was a college grad, and I was going to go I was in the ROTC program for two years, so my company commander in the reserves made me supply sergeant because I was in the in the business college, and most of those reservists were a bunch of goof offs from you know or were you know he just thought a college graduate and so on student. So so anyway, I found out that uh, a sergeant a supply sergeant could get something like E6, and that's the top of his rank grade in rank. So I said, I'm going to find out, because I'm doing the work of a, of a supply sergeant, when I can get promoted. So I learned that uh, after three months after joining or whatever it is, I could, or six months, I was eligible to become a PFC. So I went into my company, company commander during the meeting. We met on Wednesday night, hang on, once a week or a month or whatever it was. So I was there, and I said, listen, uh, Captain, I'm eligible to be a, 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 cap, a, a, a PFC. Good. Good. My, my time of the orders, so sure enough, my orders from the Pentagon. Uh, <laughs> PFC, Private Epperson is here by a part of the uh, PFC, uh, so and so dates, and the title getting to the PM, his file, and then, you know, so now I'm a PFC. So I waited six months or whatever it was, and I said I could become a corporal. So I went, hey, hey, Captain, I want to be a corporal, and my paint grade is a sergeant, supply sergeant gets me. So he said, okay, I'll make you a corporal. So got orders for the Pentagon. Hey, go, Corporal. Private PFC Epperson promoted to Corporal. Corporal Epperson. <laughs> and then I said, I found out that I'd sell them until become, and it's about the time I was getting ready to finish my. Or, uh, by the way, I, I did this because I learned that if you're in, in the Army before you, be, you get a commission, you get paid for the amount of time you spent as an enlisted man. So I was going to get $175 a month more than the standard second lieutenant in the ROTC program. My brother went through it. He got a commission. But I had a heart murmur 
When I took the physical, I didn't have a heart murmur. When I took the physical for the ROTC program, I had a heart murmur, so I didn't qualify. So I, I stayed in the reserves because a heart murmur doesn't mean you can't walk or talk or jog. It was just a heart murmur. So that passed away. So finally, the, uh, I moved to L.A. By the way, I didn't dawn on me, but I just packed up and left. Uh, uh, graduated, and I left Tucson. And I realized when I got there, I said, wait a minute, you, you're A-O-A-W-L. <laughs> you just packed up and left. So I don't know what they did to cover that, but I said, well, Epperson graduated, so he's... So anyway, I moved to L.A., so they sent me a letter after four years, uh, maybe even longer than that, uh, uh, Sergeant Epperson, uh, you're due for a, uh, a physical, so uh, please uh, uh, and we'll reassign you in L.A., so I got that, and I had to go to the physical, I went to some base or something, and uh, I still had the heart murmur. So I got a, a honorable discharge. But then, after all that was over, I, the heart murmur disappeared. I went to see a doctor, I said, I got a heart murmur, you know you don't. I said, yes I do, and he said, listen, he listened again, no, everything's fine. He gave me EKG, I don't got no murmur. So I want you to, this is my interpretation. God said, well, I don't want you to get a commission. I really believe that. I'm serious. I wouldn't have been a good officer. I was a, just a, a nerd, and I wouldn't have been. I would have gotten it because you know I had a reserve and thing, and I got. And as a, as a sergeant listed man, I'm sure I maybe had extra pay. I said no. I would have taken it and probably been court-martialed because I even <laughs> a second lieutenant. So I I got it, but I think God didn't want me to go. Uh, so anyway. I'm Sergeant Epperson, and we went to Camp Irwin my senior year, and I'm now a sergeant, baby, which means I got rank. I got, I'm, so I was tight. Here's, Camp Irwin is in the desert, the Mojave Desert, just so miles away from Death Valley. So it's 110 daily, every day. We're there in August or something, playing soldiers in that desert. So little Ralphie got to sit, sit in an air conditioned office as a supply sergeant, typing requisitions to buy bullets or whatever it was, or make the records or whatever it was. So I'm sitting there. So after I got, it was the day was over, I'd go into my barracks. These guys would come in covered in dirt and mud and oil from greasing the tubes of these tanks that were, wherever it was. And I'm sitting there with creases from the crease while I'm sitting in my chair for the first race. <laughs> so Everson got in charge and got his first orders as a sergeant. Everson, you are in charge for two weeks of the latrines. Hi, baby. I, what's a latrine? I said, what do I got to do? I do guard a position outside of the, at the camp and a latrine, and I'm going to guard it with a rifle, and I got to say, no, Everson, you got to take care of the rest of your latrines. So I was, that's my first official duty as a sergeant, sergeant of the latrines. <laughs> and you're laughing. You promised me you wouldn't laugh. No, because we talked about the Andy Griffith thing. <laughs> <laughs> Those who don't remember, tell them what Andy Griffith had him had him do. Well, they 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 assigned him as a punishment to go in and clean the bathrooms, and he was supposed to be some hick from down south that didn't know any better. Well, he rigged up all the toilets to salute when the uh, when the officer came in. So <laughs> he came in, he he stamped his foot down, and all the toilet seats went up. <laughs> Well, I didn't have that ability, but I'll be honest with you, uh, I let, I, they knew that I was, I mean, I didn't do any of the cleaning. I went in there with my rank stripes on, and they knew what it meant. I didn't give them any orders. 
they knew that after they got, uh, they were there to clean up, and they took their showers, and they would clean the chrome and the thing. So I went over it again uh, to make sure that it was really clean. If there was a spot or two they missed. I went there with my chamois to shine it up, and all the chrome was shined up, and all the water was made, removed from the sink itself and the toilets. There was nothing in them. I know you. They were all down, and wherever it was, all flush. So I got, I was every day, the next day, in the morning, we had a newsletter. And I won, I think, I think of the 10 days I was in charge, I think I won like five times I was at, of the four, we had four, four barracks, and I was, I won the best, best one, uh, four times, five times, so it was half, half right. So, Sergeant Epperson, Bill is ordered, sir. As I'm sorry, Sergeant. Okay. I put this on the internet a day or two ago. Ronald Reagan, I'm sorry, Donald Trump is accused of asking a government for a favor, and that's not, that's not, not you don't, you don't, you can't do that, Reagan, and Trump, that's a violation of your, and we're going to impeach you for that. Isn't that what it is? Trump didn't ask for a favor, but that's what they're claiming he did from a government. Right. Right. He didn't do that. But wait a minute. In the past, Abraham Lincoln asked a foreign government for a favor. He got in touch with the Tsar of Russia through his Secretary of State and said, listen, please, would you, would you send your fleet to the coast? They had the Atlantic fleet and Pacific fleet, and the Pacific fleet showed up in San Francisco, and the Atlantic fleet showed up in, uh, in ports along the uh, uh, East Coast. So the Russians actually saved the North because those, those ships, well, you're huh? those ships actually aided in the blockade of the South to keep England and France from sending war materials to kill soldiers in the North. So he didn't get impeached. Wait a minute, Lincoln should have been impeached. He asked the government for a favor. The Lord impeached Trump when he didn't do it. How about Abraham Lincoln? No one tried to impeach him. Well, yeah, well, he did in a sense, <laughs> and not because of the, the Russians, because Lincoln issued the Greenback dollar, which was not borrowed, and saved us trillions of dollars in interest. But wait a minute, Ronald Reagan did the same thing. He was one of those dreaded Republicans. Reagan went to went to Berlin. They built a platform for him, and he got up up there with the with the uh, loudspeakers yeah, and I'll take care. and he said to them, Gorbachev, tear down this wall. He had no right to do that. He's asking for a favor. In fact, demanding a favor. He wasn't impeached. Donald Trump didn't ask for any favors, and he's getting impeached. Right. What does that tell you? This is stupidity. Yeah. They didn't impeach Lincoln or impeach Reagan when he did even worse. But notice, when they tore down the wall, we didn't have to build a military as strong as that we required. Because they were no longer communists, or at least that's what we're told. And right. when we got the fleet over here, they have to admit that did cost us money, because the, the, the Tsar of Russia two years later sent a bill to uh, Johnson, who became president, by his vice president, Andrew Johnson, I think his name was. He got a bill for 7.2 million dollars, and he paid it for the use of the fleet by buying Alaska. Uh huh. Wait a minute. If I may digress for a minute, there are two things, major things that I contributed to in my book that had not been discovered before. 
in, in any book on the Civil War. One was the fact that the Knights of the Golden Circle were created to to promote the war, the war starting 19 years before it started. Mm -hmm. It came to America with 14,000 uh, 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 members, and I've read estimates as high as 200,000. I don't know. Some, but that group was the one that promoted the war by getting the South to secede. Right. I went to every book I could find on the Civil War at, at a used bookstore, and actually a new bookstore as well. And I picked up every book that had an index. And I went to the Knights of the Golden Circle and the index in the back, not one of over 30 books that I looked at, different titles written by all sorts of different people that covered the Civil War by itself, or at least part of the, the history of the time, not one mentioned the Knights of the Golden Circle. Huh. Three months after the, the assassination, he was assassinated in April, I think, and by like September, a book came out called The Conspiracy That Killed Lincoln, and it talked about the Knights of the Golden Circle. Mm -hmm. It was known they did it four months after, forgive me, I'm getting emotional, Lincoln was assassinated. Within four months, someone broke the story and published a book, and it was sold. Mm -hmm. So now, our current historians, going back as long as any as long as the book was being sold, either used or new, I, I saw it, and not one of them mentioned that until The Unseen Hand in 1985. Right. Number two, no one. I looked up the Russian fleet. Not one mentioned it at all. And without the Russian fleet, it's likely the South would have won the war. Uh-huh. By the way, there's something, something that I've never had anyone write as well. Let's end with this last thought. Notice that the the uh, the uh, the South didn't call themselves a union; they called themselves a confederacy, which meant each state was independently who joined together in a confederacy, but they retained their sovereignty. Right. Which means that after the, if they had won the war, it wouldn't have been the South; it would have been a nation called Georgia. A nation called Florida, a nation called Virginia, a nation, and then the bankers who loaned the money to those states could start wars like France fighting England and England fighting Algeria and Algeria, you know, funding these nations as they did with the central banks in the nations of Europe, constantly at war. And that means that the South would have been constantly fighting, maybe even getting North and South Carolina to attack Texas, and that means more money we can borrow and loan to the government to fight the war. That's oh, sure. what Lincoln was trying to protect us against. He talked about the money power. He knew that was possible. That's why he tried to save the Union. Yeah. Nobody that I've read has come up with that. And I've read 30 books on the Civil War. Stop and think about that. That's incredible. Not even right. history books talk about that. For uh -huh. high schools. So little Ralphie's one of the guys out there in, in the snow with the snow boots on trying to walk in the, in the snow finding things that no one else has discovered. Exactly. I will say that to both. I'm telling you, read The Unseen Hand, and you're going to learn more history like that college student than 18 years of education. Read The Unseen Hand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree. You know, I've re I read it, and I, especially with the Alaska thing, 
I tell people that all the time, and they're like, no, it's not true. And I'm like, well, you better read on it because it is true. And then they study up on it. You know, they'll go onto the Internet, look it up, and sure enough, you know, it's they, they find it. And they're like, wow, that, that's amazing. I've never known that before. They never taught me that. Well, I wonder, wonder neither did the books cover it either. Why? Why? Because they didn't want us to know that Russia saved the North. And right. that Confederacy was made up of, if they had won the war, they would have divided into sovereign nations, each one a separate nation, just like uh-huh. Europe and Florida would attack Georgia, and Georgia would attack Alabama, and Alabama, and Georgia would attack Texas, and then we'd have this perpetual war, because they right. would all, each one of those nations would have a central bank. Uh-huh, exactly. No one but Rafi Everson puts that in writing. Now, I don't say that to most, I'm trying to point out to you, that book has got some value to it. That's, yeah, it does. I wrote that book for that student. Mm-hmm. He said 18 years of education. Now, I have to admit, that's first grade all the way through. I figured it out how long it was. And if he gets a PhD, it's going to be 22, he could there four years, 22 years of education. He learned more in my book than he did not 22 years of education. That's amazing. What, are you, what does that mean? We're not teaching our students anything. No, and it's done on purpose, too. You betcha it is. You know? That's a shame. It really is. That's enough. Oh, if I may, this be my last comment. If I okay, sure. I watched the DVD. Please listen to me. I cannot verify this is real, but I'm bringing it to your attention because if it's real, I'm going to warn you. I watched a two-hour documentary. I don't. Unfortunately, I didn't. I was stunned by what I was watching. And it's very poorly made. The guy's got a, that's like a German accent. He's telling us there's going to be an attack on November the 3rd this year. That's just, what, two weeks away? Yeah. Saturday, a Sunday. And it's going to take place in Seattle. He's got, in his mind, he's got proof it's going to be Seattle. And it's going to be involved with the, the stadium because the Seattle's, Seahawks are playing a game that day in that stadium. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be a dirigible. And guess what? Just yesterday or two weeks ago, the Goodyear people came out with a new dirigible. Really? I'm, I don't know. I, please, I don't even know who this guy is. I've never heard of him. But let's just say it's true and no one pays attention. Goodbye. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Please. If you're living in Seattle... Take a day off and go south or north, east or west or get out of the city. Please. Right. right. What if it, if it's wrong, you got a chance to enjoy your family. Get them out of there. Mm-hmm. If it's if it's not a 9-11, we knew about 9-11 as early as 1985 when, when Spielberg made Back to the Future. That story of 9-11 is in there 25 times. That's right. So please, you know, don't it's true. But if it is true and you didn't go, I'm saying thank you very much and God bless you. I hope you made your peace with Jesus. Yeah, right. There was a movie that came out in 1977, Ralph, called Black Sunday. Do you remember it? No. It go ahead. It's a movie about a blimp that attacks a stadium. <laughs> uh, I keep reading. Is, was it in Seattle? Uh, I'm looking here. Hold on a sec. Uh, it says uh, 
It says Black Sunday is the name of the movie. 1977 American thriller film directed by John Frankenheimer based on Thomas Harris' novel of the same name. The film was produced by Robert Evans. Okay, let's see. Uh, The insertion of the story came from the Munich massacre perpetrated by Black September organization against Israeli athletes in the 1972 Summer Olympics. Uh, Plot. Michael Landers is a pilot who flies the Goodyear blimp over national football league games to film football, uh, excuse me, network television, secretly deranged for years as, of torture as a POW in the Vietnam War. He had a bitter court, uh, what, a bitter court marshal, uh, on his return in a failed marriage. He longs to commit suicide and take as many as possible with him. Um, let's see. Landers is desperate, uh, pal- uh, just being in love with a Palestinian operative, uh, from Black September who controls and manipulates him. Uh, oh, it's, it's uh, to detonate over the Miami Orange Bowl during Super Bowl 10. Okay, Miami. Yeah, yeah. Um, then an, an Israeli, uh, Mossad agent and, a, and an FBI agent, uh, find out about it and I guess put an end to it. Well, that, that yeah. could be. Once again, please, I I, I hate to bring this because obviously if it doesn't happen, whoever said, you dare, you're crazy, you said it, I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm saying it could happen. And if it does, and you you heard it and didn't ignore it, you ignored it, I'm saying goodbye. But if it doesn't happen, then laugh at me, call me a name, but I'm trying to save you if it does happen. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Because we knew about 9-11 Years in advance, if you watch that movie, Back to the Future, three of them, they all three of them covered it very epic, and it was very clear that in the movie it was going to be the Twin Towers. That's the last, right. the last one. The show uh-huh. was appalling. Yeah. A, a script, uh, you know, a TV set that flipped up the, the, the channel, the, the screen moved down, flipped down, and the guy that was, uh, let's see, flipped up, I guess, and the guy that was able to view it was upside down, if you remember. Uh, the, the lady opens the door. There's a guy standing, but he's not standing. He's upside down, and he's got a helicopter thing that allows him to be upside down, and the propeller is up, above his feet. So uh-huh. he, he moves it. So then he op- opens the door and he walks. He doesn't walk yet. He flies in with the helicopter like as a beanie. He's got a, a motor there and a rope, you know, propeller, and he moves in. And as he does, the screen shows. It shows it going up, but when he sees it, it's going down because it's reversed. He's upside down. So they were oh, telling, man. Yeah, it's going huh. to be Twin Towers. Hey, you know, uh, I was looking at this, and it said they, they, they conspire together to launch a suicide attack using a bomb composed of plastique and a quarter million steel flechettes housed on the underside of the gondola of the blimp, which they will detonate over them. And, uh, this is their chase by helicopters, and then the one guy lowers himself on into the blimp and uh, uh, and uh, takes out these people before the uh, the blimp can uh, can detonate. So I'm telling you, the the, the and you know this, Ralph. The uh, the uh, the powers that be, so to speak, we'll call them the deep state or whatever. They always they'll they'll always tip you off ahead of time of what they're going to do. Yes, you hey, know, but it's generally concealed in some way. Like, right. 
they're, they're, they're doing it to let notify the initiates that it's their, it's their, their, their plan or their deal. Right. So what better way than to, to uh, make a movie in 1977 of something you're going to do uh, 30 or 40 years later, you know? Possibility. Okay. Well, I had a couple more to discuss, but I don't want to go any further. I don't want to wear out my welcome. It's now, we've been on for, we did this, started it. Uh, Almost two hours and 40 minutes, yeah. So you well, we can continue it. We can continue it next time. You know, well, three or four more, but they're but they might take five, ten minutes. I don't know, but that's okay. Uh, we can hold it until next week or whatever you want to do. Because I think what I'm going to do uh, is and let's just continue this. Uh, uh-huh. We can talk about current events this way, and uh, you know, I'm I'm very prolific at getting people. I I don't I don't know about this, but I'm probably the one, the number one agitator on on uh, Facebook, at least for. For my timeline, I wish I don't know how many people see what I do. I don't know. I don't understand how Facebook works, and I'm trying to find out how it does work, so that we can know how to use it. Because I don't know. I know that I've got a uh, I've got a, a Facebook. I call it a timeline. And I type it says, "What's on your mind, Ralph?" And I click on that and I type it in and send it, and it shows up uh, in Facebook. And there's a number on my thing, so it's Facebook number 73, and it shows that, and it's the top, but then a short while later, it's transferred over to my timeline, so it becomes the top line on my timeline, which is on uh, uh, Ralph Epperson's Facebook. Right. So I don't know, does that mean only that the people on my listing of nearly 4,000 Facebook friends see it, and they're the only ones? There are people on my that see it and sign it, or they, like I say, like it, that I don't recognize, which means uh, from my friend list, which means people maybe someplace else can see this. I don't know how it works. Right. Yeah, well, there's friends and there's friends of friends and friends of friends of friends, you know, and everything else on Facebook. But, you know, it could be that we're reaching millions. I don't know that. Oh, yeah, definitely. I don't doubt it. It claims there's like six million people on Facebook. But I will say this, as a negative to this, uh, on my Facebook uh, listing on, on my Facebook timeline, it shows up uh, seven people had their birthday today. Well, wait a minute. If there's six million people, only seven of them have the same birthday? Well, seven, seven of you, those are your friends, Ralph. So those, only? Yeah. Okay. Those are your friends on Facebook. That yeah. answers that question. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, so they're saying that someone else maybe on Facebook had a birthday, but I don't know about it because only... My some of my friends had that common date. Okay, right, right. That helps at least. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how that thing works, but I, I, I got four, nearly four thousand uh, uh, fr- uh, friends who said I want to be a friend of yours on there, and I, they know they stopped at five thousand. So I'm getting, I'm not, I'm a thousand away, but I'm adding them on there probably two or three a week now. So, uh-huh. People, uh-huh. by the way, I'm very selective. I don't take people that uh, to want. You know, I, I know people know that I'm single, and, and and since I look so much like Tom Selleck, a lot of people want to meet me. So, wait, that wasn't meant to be funny. Who laughed? I heard you, David. I heard you laugh. So, I, mean, I know, and I get letters, girls, women, of all ages, saying, hey, how you doing, buddy? I need to, we need to talk. And I write back and say, listen, 
I'm not on Facebook to talk. I'm on Facebook to, to warn you that there's a conspiracy out to take away your rights and privileges. And I'm urging you, would you manage that? So then I, I send that off to them, and it shows up on my message board or wherever it is. So uh-huh. I, I don't hear from them again. Then in a couple of weeks, I, hey, old buddy, how are you? Wait a minute. Have you, did you, did you read it? Did you want to check it? You got a question? No, I don't. So then I, I don't make them friends. I say, you know, I don't care. Right. right. I don't want to waste time on talking about the dogs we have or uh, cats or whatever. Exactly. Exactly. I make a lot of, I kind of make fun of Ralph Epperson on the, uh, I have pictures of me. Uh, There's a picture of me taken by my friend. uh, uh, We were at the zoo. And uh, she's a, this young girl is a very avid photographer. This woman's, she's majorly uh, studio quality photographer. She ta- I don't know how she does it. She's got all the equipment, you know. She's got zoom lenses and filters and, you know, zoom. She's got tripods and everything. So anyway, uh, I said, okay, she's taking pictures of flamingos. So I walked around the, the corner, probably 30 feet away, and there's a wooden platform and there's this little box. You pay, put in a quarter, and you get a uh, uh, feed for the flamingos. So I, I got a, uh, put a quarter, and I got the flamingos. I got seeds, and I started feeding the flamingos. Well, some of them come over there, and they're a bunch of beggars, for Pete's sake. And they say, look, this guy's, this guy is a god. He's feeding us. So I said, okay. So I put probably 75 cents in there while she's taking pictures. So she took a picture of me doing that. So I took that picture and put it on Facebook, and I said, would you let this man feed your flamingos? People <laughs> <laughs> said, no, I wouldn't. You're right. I just I wouldn't trust him anywhere near my flamingo. <laughs> 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 uh, I got a picture of me that I, 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 I don't think I've ever talked about this on the air, but I should, because this guy, I, I found this, uh, I think it was called serendipity or something. It was, it just stumbled onto it. There's a guy in uh, uh, outside of Tucson in a rather deserty area, but it's also some, it's little hilly. It's a, you know, 50 feet hills, and then it curls up, and then it goes down to a little maybe a wash or something. And then there's another little hill, and there's just a smart, uh, not a very heavy uh, uh, cover of trees or bushes. And he found a spot with the, with the, the little hills on either side, and he started building a, a old western town. One building at a time. And yeah. now he's got probably a dozen. It's called Gammon's Gulch. And I, I've been there two times, and I just love it. It's fascinating. He's, and he, he's, a, he's a character. Uh, he's got stories. And he, what, you, what you do is you, he does it for donations. He doesn't charge for it. If you don't pay him, that's fine. But he'll give you a 45-minute tour of the building and how he built it and the stories that go connected. And he's got sometimes funny stories. He's a real character. So anyway, I have a, uh, I did a DVD on Jesse James, and so I gave a speech with that, and I pretended that was Jesse, and I had, I bought a, uh, what they call a uh, dust, a dust, dust, duster, mm-hmm. duster, thank you, duster, and it's long, and it's clear, you know, kind of beige, and I bought that, and I had guns, uh, a pistol and a holster, and I have a big badge showing me that I'm a sheriff, and so I had my cowboy hat and my boots on, and black or Levi's, Pants, so I looks like I'm as much as I could be an old Westerner. So I said, I got to take a picture. He said, Well, come around back. And uh, so he had a jail built there, and in the back of it, he's got a he's got a, a swing. I mean, a goose hanging from uh-huh. a tree. 
So I grabbed the tree and gave that, well, you know, I'm John Wayne here, you know, so I, so I said, uh, 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 here, and I'm, I stay, you know, my feet are apart, and I'm hanging on to the noose with a look, stern look in my face. And so I said that in the Facebook. I said, would you let this man hang your wife? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gee. <laughs> and that means, are you going to shoot this guy because he's hanging your wife? And you bet you're <laughs> going to. And I'm so stupid. I said, listen, take your best shot, buddy. I'm John Wayne. Go on, Bob. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I had a phone call from some guy traveling through, and he had a small temper, as I recall, a toy the trailer, maybe, where it was. So he said, I'm in so and so. He parked in like a uh, uh, Walmart shopping, you know, big Walmart where you can park and put a trailer on it and stop and not be bothered by people. So he said, There's a, uh, uh, I guess, a, uh, 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 a cop, not a coffee shop, but like a. Uh, What's it called? Uh, Cafe or? Yeah, uh, right, but it's uh, Denny's. It's like a Denny's. So we oh, okay. moved inside so we can sit for a little while. So he said, meet me in Denny's. So I walked in, and there he was. So he had his wife, and a little girl, probably eight or nine years old. So uh, she's sitting uh, a, a, a post. Okay, here's a curved uh, 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 table, and, of course, the couch, uh, the, the seats curved as well. So I'm sitting uh, at the at the left side of the table at number one. Uh, the little girl's sitting at number two. He's sitting at probably about straight ahead. And then the wife is sitting like at two o'clock. So I'm sitting at the end. And so uh, he says to her, let's take a picture of us. So uh, so he, the little girl stood up. And so she could be seen, you know, rather than just her neck. She stood up and... So, I, so he must have said to her, listen, we're going to take it. This is Ralph Epperson, he's a world-famous author. So click goes the camera, and he gets me the, the, he sent me the picture later. And it, just at that precise moment, the little daughter turned and looked away. And I said, <laughs> wait a minute, this is Ralph Epperson, the world-famous author? And your little daughter said, are you? Come on. <laughs> I said, look at what the daughter thinks about being Ralph Epperson. She turned away and looked out the window. <laughs> That's hilarious. Be nice. Come on. Put up there. Be, be friendly. Just sit there with a mop on your face. I don't want to be. How you take my picture? No, she just looked away at the precise moment that wife took the picture. I said, I said, this is what you get for being Ralph Epperson. No one pays. You know, daughters don't pay any attention. Yeah, I don't get no respect. No respect at all. <laughs> no respect at all. Yeah. Rodney Dangerfield of the historical yeah. research world. <laughs> I try to have fun on the internet because, you know, David, I know you know this as well as I do. If we don't laugh, we go crazy. That's because true. This is serious business. We're not just talking about, well, maybe he's a Democrat and maybe he'll raise my... We're talking about the whole civilization being destroyed. That's how exactly. absurd. And this nation being totally destroyed. We're going to end up with a new world order if we all survive. Maybe they're going to kill some of us or all of us. Who knows? But that ain't, that ain't going to be fun, baby. No, it ain't. Because I know what it's going to be. I wrote a book about it. And still, by the way, the champion book on that subject, The New World, right. Ralph Everson. I showed you what Pat Robertson's book talked about. Imagine right. right. planning, 
spreading a, a, a promoting a conspiracy based by Lucifer, headed by Lucifer. That's the man you want to vote for. So I endorsed him. <laughs> that, by the way, since we're let me end with this last story, I promise you. Okay. I, I learned Barry Goldwater was a thirty third degree Mason years after I worked for him as a volunteer during the Goldwater campaign of sixty four. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I don't like the man anymore. I used to I met him several times and whenever I did I went up to him and said, Thank you for what you're doing. I know it's a great sacrifice to be away, but we're working like crazy to elect you and he shook my hand and said thank you and then walked away. But I met him uh, probably four times out on the out of at, at rallies or Maybe a speech he was given, wherever. So I knew Barry Goldwater. So anyway, he, uh, uh, where was I going with this? Uh, why did I bring that up? I had a point to make. Well, whatever it was, now it's eluded my memory. Why did I bring Goldwater up? What was it about? I don't know, you said he was a 33rd degree Mason. And... Yeah, that might be. Then I, once I found that out, I, I started speaking, and, and uh, he was still alive in Arizona. He retired. Oh, that's what it was. I talked about Pat Robertson saying these, he said, George Bush is mouthing these words, but he's doing it unknowingly, but I'm going to vote him for throwing him into uh, the, the presence. I want to endorse him. Here's right. Barry Goldwater wrote a book that I read. I, 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 I can't remember the title. I've got it in my stack over there. I read three or four of his books. But in his book, he excoriates viciously the CFR and the Trilateral Commission. And the fact that George Bush was involved with both of those. And he said, in essence, he said, stay away from this man. I'll give you one more story. Let's see if I remember this correctly. Ronald Reagan. Wait, let me finish the Goldwater story. So Goldwater's in his own book tells us to avoid George Bush. Mm-hmm. Ray Goldwater, after he retired, had arthritis. He had to walk with the cane. He's retired and out of, out of circulation. He actually got on an airplane and flew to New Hampshire when it was snowing, which means that gets your arthritis, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. He was there to endorse George Bush. See, they're all in bed with each other. Bet they are. Yeah. Pat, Pat Robertson's in the same bed with Barry Goldwater mm-hmm. because they're endorsing men who are Luciferians, and they both knew it, and they're endorsing him as well. Yeah. Exactly. When I got back to Tucson, whenever I had a chance to talk about him, I I told this story and others about him and what uh, what uh, what he what how I met really supported him and worked you know sleeping going to bed at two o'clock after sealing five thousand envelopes with my tongue almost uh, using sponges but just working like crazy to get the flyer out that day so we get there on Thursday when I knew where it was. There was a rally they were holding, and I looked mm-hmm. at that guy, and then I realized what a traitor he was. That's right. That's right. Hey, Ralph, we're about out of time, man. We're at two, you know, almost three hours, so. Well, listen, you have been very kind and cooperative, and I appreciate the fact that you are. Oh, did. my pleasure. Well, well pleasure's well, been mine, my friend. May I just say this, and I always try to do this. I want to thank you personally, David for giving me a chance to listen to whoever listens to this, whatever connection they've got. If they can hear this, please listen all the time, as much as you can, to learn there's something going on, and David and I are trying to expose it and make it public for you. Please listen and pay attention and do something about it. God bless you, David. Keep up the good work. Keep in touch. We'll be out in touch next time. Yeah. We'll do next. 
Yeah, we'll do this next Wednesday again. Okay? Okay. Let me uh, see.